Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Tuesday morning, October 24, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. I don't know if we did a um I don't know if we did our show a disservice yesterday by staying for nearly an hour on college football and uh, the politics surrounding um college football. I was summoned yesterday for a moment or two by some of the um Ah, some of the brass. There you go. Some of the brass. Um, Clemson University doesn't worry about me at all. <laughs> but every now and then when I get out of line, Uh-oh. you know, when I get out of line Uh-oh. as a loyal uh, and time-tested Gamecock, I have to get back in in line. But the older I get, the less inclined I am to get back in line. When I was younger, if someone would hold that parking pass over my head or hold those, um, you know, those those premium seats over my head, I'd be more inclined to say, Okay. You know, kind of like the Democrats do when they vote unanimously on whatever it is. Right. You know, I noticed the similarity well, I mean, in the way that sounds. The leadership of the Democrat okay. Party are obviously geniuses because none of their beef, none of their none of their caucus disagrees with what uh, the leadership says. And then it's um it's the fringe of the political right in America when when Republicans have a little bit of disagreement about the uh, the policies. Anyway, um the, the one thing that I got in trouble about yesterday, Rev, was not some of my, I actually, I had a psycho babbling article um, that was picked up by, it actually got picked up by Fitz News Sunday, and uh, somebody put it on the big spur, I think yesterday, and it had a bunch of comments and Uh-oh. following, and obviously somebody would bring up my political past. You know, I mean, that's always oh. the the, uh, the jab. Yeah, uh, when they have nothing uh, constructive to say, well, I, I mean, guess. I guess. But, but anyway, somebody said, somebody put, hey, here's the source. And it reposted a Posted Courier article from 2012, I think. And uh, and somebody, I mean, not, I don't know who these people are. It's just, um, you know, USC granddad, USC father, USC whatever. I mean, they've all got these monikers that they go by on these message boards. Um, and the guy said, okay. That's an interesting article from, you know, a decade ago. You could disagree or agree with what the guy said. And even the guy said, I disagree. I mean, I, I totally agree with, with with the concept of what he said. But someone said, okay, you're offering kind of a summation of what you believe the problems are. What are the solutions? I mean, do, you know, okay, it's easy to say, well, this is wrong and this is wrong and that's wrong and this other over here is wrong. What are the solutions? And, I, you know, apparently the person that listened to the radio show because I walked through yesterday what I think some of the solutions are, and nobody in the political, excuse me, nobody at the USC hierarchy has any problem with, with what I said except except uh, the board elections, you right. know, the trustee right. elections, because I believe, I'm thinking about Jim now and public electing of dr- judges. You know, we've had this debate for a year now about how best to elect judges. Well, let's have it for a second on how best to elect trustees, whether Clemson or South Carolina. I mean, if I wanted to be the 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 consummate Gamecock antagonist, and I mean, if I wanted to be Boone Pickens, I mean, Boone, from what I gathered, was always a thorn in Oklahoma's side because he had a bunch of money, and he was smart. Now, I'm neither, um, so take me for what I'm worth. I'm not smart. I don't have a bunch of money, but Boone Pickens stayed on the Oklahoma Sooner radar because he was very outspoken, very smart, and had a bunch of money. Um so he would antagonize Oklahoma with some of his political affiliations. I mean, you got to believe that Boone knew his way around the Oklahoma Capitol. I mean, you just got to believe that. 
Um, and Oklahoma State was the little brother of Big Bad OU. Um, so we've debated about judgeships. We've debated about the best way to elect judges. I think we've admitted there is no really, really good way. There's just the least bad of all the bad ways. Um, trusting elections, how many of, how many people believe this would make sense? Rev, I'll ask you. Mm-hmm. You've got two sons who graduated from USC. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a season ticket holder. You're a Gamecock Club member. You mm-hmm. have every right to state your opinion without fear of, uh, yeah, you like those premium passes? You like that parking <laughs> spot you got? You better, be, you better be careful here, old boy. Um, yeah. but, but what do you think of this? What do you think of instead of trustees being, oh, well, first of all, what do you think of term limits for trustees? Hmm. Hadn't given it much thought to be you, totally you, honest with you. Know, you. you know the friends I have on the board. Yep. You and I had a, a thousand conversations sure. about my friendships. Sure. It's not personal at all. I mean, this has nothing well, yeah, to do with obviously. personal feelings or opinions because one day I'm gone and one day the board members are gone. One day there'll be a, a, a not so good way to elect people who leave the university or a better way to lead people. Um, we talked last week or the week before, week before about the Clemson land grant. I mean, it secures the right for Clemson to have lifetime appointees. Is that good? I mean, is it I good? mean, I think overall uh, the approach for keeping a board um, a little fluid, in other words, not lifetime appointments, not you know appointment after appointment after appointment that ends up being a lifetime, is probably better for the university and in probably pretty much any endeavor. I, I mean, mean Congress work, included, by the you, way. You work at the paper mill so long you forget it stinks. It's not yeah. bad people. It's not, uh, you know, they malice certainly love the, the university sure, and want what's best for it. And they believe they're doing what's best. But but I still believe the infusion of young blood, um, the, kind of the, the, you know, we don't have the same people here but for so long, um, that was very unpopular in my circle yesterday. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that you know, term limits. Um, what about this? What about alumni or alumnus and financial supporters being allowed to vote on I think the University of South Carolina has 21 trustees. Let's take six or seven of those and have elections of alumnus and financial supporters. I mean, it's not the guy on the street. I mean, it would yeah, be people it, with a vested interest. People. I mean, yeah. it, we, it's a public university, right. so in in theory, every taxpayer sure. has a has a public interest. Uh, but if you if you kind of um okay, you folks who have more of an interest, you're going to vote for a certain number of board members. In other words. Rev is a financial supporter. I'm a financial supporter. Um, you're not an alum, but your two boys are. Right. My daughter will be. They all get to vote in some way, shape, or form for a percentage of of the board. Mm-hmm. I think that makes yeah, sense. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and another, you know, the governor. Uh, should the governor appoint more or less of the board members at USC? What I'm arguing is you're never going to take the politics out of it. Uh, but the state house is on the USC campus. I mean, I understand the University of South Carolina doesn't own the property or the grounds that the state house is owned, but it owns everything around it. I mean, the, in all practicality, the True. the state house where all the political decisions in South Carolina are made are on the campus of the University of South Carolina, you know, in Columbia. So, so you know, you're not going to take the politics out of it, but how do you make it less political? That would be my desire. How do you make it more about the university and less about how long you've been on the board how prestigious it is to be on on the board at USC. And, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If I were Boone Pickens and I were going after Clemson the way Boone probably would, I think the lifetime appointments are a violation of the state constitution. I mean, I really mm. believe that. I don't think anybody's ever pushed that but so hard. 
I, I think the land grant and the, and the public funding of the university would lead to a lawsuit that I think Clemson would lose. Now, now once again, it would take somebody with a you know an axe to grind and a bunch of money and a long time to wait to watch it work through the judicial system. But that you know the, the other thing I propose, the two things I propose for South Carolina, the University of South Carolina. Um, I mean, I, I think they make sense. Um, if you're not playing in the NIL space, and I think some of Clemson's decline, and some, I didn't say all, some of Clemson's decline is a lack of aggressiveness in the NIL space. Dabo didn't like the NIL. Dabo didn't like the transfer portal. And Dabo's a big deal in Tiger Town, And he's earned the right to be a big deal. He's a multiple national championship winning coach. And he built a program on culture and doing things the way Clemson, uh, you know, the, the Clemson way, all in, the family, the bond. I bleed orange. You bleed orange. I mean, that's – I just don't think that's as effective today when kids can – when you can stroke a check and tell a kid, hey, show up at Bojangles tomorrow and somebody's going to be there with five grand for you and you mm -hmm. sign 20 autographs or 30 autographs. Name, image, and likeness and transfer portal have really changed that dynamic fundamentally. So I believe – that the university that begins figuring out a way to give Day Baker points, because a lot of this is a lot of your seating and parking and priorities are based on how many points, how long you've been there, how much money right. have you given. So if Baker's only got so much money, if I've only got so much money and I don't want to lose my points or parking, I mean I don't want to lose my tickets or parking or be you know I, I don't want to be relegated. I don't want to say hey you, you you didn't give as much this year. Therefore, you're not going to get as good a tickets or as good a parking because um, you gave money to that dadgum NIL, you know, to help pay these players. This craziness, this chaos in college football. I think the university that figures out a way to say, we're going to split the baby. I mean, you can give money to the Gamecock Club. You can give money to NIL. And those NIL donations or contributions parlay into points. I mean, they play just like you making a contribution uh, to the Gamecock Club because you got to realize at Clemson in South Carolina. I don't know what it is at Stanford. I don't know what it is. I'd kind of do it, Duke. Um, but but at Clemson in South Carolina, football is the revenue generator. And if football is doing good, odds are it Tay and the Gamecock Club are doing okay. Um, I was thinking about this yesterday. Imagine not funding an NIL and encouraging universities, encouraging you know boosters and donors and supporters to don't give to that NIL, give to the Gamecock Club because this is our fiefdom. And we've got, you know, we, we've got, we've got, um, we've got quotas. We got certain amounts of money we got to raise for the equestrian team and the bass fishing team and the women's basketball team. Imagine doing that if your football team every year is three and nine, if your football team every year is four and eight, or go out and try to raise money for the equestrian team, the lacrosse team at Clemson. If your football team is twelve and two, and have played in a, you know, a, a big bowl game or a championship series game. It's going to be a lot easier. Clemson fans are going to be a lot more inclined to give if the football team is riding high. Gamecock fans are going to be a lot, lot, a lot more so. I just believe that when you say, well, the Gamecock club is over here, Ipte's over here, and the NIL's over there. Okay, okay, let that football team struggle and watch how hard it is to raise money at Ipte or the Gamecock club. And the third thing that, that I would do if I were king of the Gamecock world is I would hire a football CEO. I mean, I've said this. I think football has distinguished itself in at Clemson in South Carolina as being the revenue generator, and I think the revenue generator deserves special care and consideration. 
And I, I mean, I'm talking about somebody who's employed by the university, paid a lot of money. I don't know what a lot of money is in their world, but I'm not talking about some peon that, you know, graduated from the Darling Moore School of Business and he got them the year later. I'm talking about somebody who's tried and true and understands management, understands entertainment, understands um, dealing with people. And that person responsible for CSX and game day traffic. I mean, how many days have you been to Columbia and a darn freight train is going through the middle of Columbia right. on game day? And I'm like, really? I mean, nobody coordinates this. We can't I mean, plan I this a little better. The, I understand the people that run the railroad don't give a rat's ass when Carolina plays football, nor should they. But but that person would be responsible for all the coordination, how long the wait times are in the east upper deck to get a beer and a popcorn. I mean, he's responsible for, you know, making sure we're adequate or exceptional uh, there, he or she. I mean, I'm saying he, he or he or she, and they're, you know, they're coordinating an IAL. I mean, it's just, it's a football chief executive officer. I think Thad Turnipseed, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, I got some buddies at Clemson have told me this, that Thad Turnipseed might have been named director of external affairs, but he was kind of the guy. I think Debo hired him. I think Saban hired him to begin with and said, hey, Thad, just look around and make us better. Whatever it takes, whatever you see that you think you can make better, you have full authority. And I think when Dabo hired Thad Turnip Seed, he kind of had the same marching orders. I mean, I, I, I'm not telling you to, you know, to say, make sure t- season tickets are up two and a half percent, but but I want you to every day you get up in the morning figure out a way to make Clemson athletics football in particular. I think it's football uh, in general. Just just make it better. I think a, a university that hires a football CEO and accepts that in 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 these two universities' cases, football is so much different than every other sport that it doesn't fall under the guise of the AD. The AD's got a lot of different things to do. He's got to deal with Olympic sports and lacrosse and women's basketball and women's soccer and softball and some of the Title IX issues. That football CEO wakes up every day, eat, breathing, and sleeping. Football. Um, you know, the, the 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 equestrian team and where they get their horse food. Uh, they they, they got to go see Ray Tanner or, um, well, what's the guy's name now? Uh, Neff, yeah. Uh, Neff at, uh, at Clemson, 843-661-0937. I want to do this when we get back. Jeff kind of insinuated yesterday that, you know, certain Democrats had presided over a lessening of the deficit, and that's just not true. I mean, I knew that was not true. There have been, you know, bigger increases and smaller increases at certain time, but I want to kind of historically and not analyze the debt, but just kind of bring the light. When, where, why the debt got on steroids. And it usually is around, you know what, Josh? The fighting of wars. Imagine that. Take a break. Back in a few. When you really go back, and and I went back as far as 1929. Josh, I want you to listen to this because this is important. This is something that your generation will have to deal with because my generation chose not to. Thank I mean, you for in, that. in all honesty, I mean, you know, we're, we're really good. I mean, us, us says, boomers, thank you for that. Well, I mean, us boomers are really good at about these younger generations. You know how they are work ethic and, uh, you know, their, their damn hairs on, you know, and what I mean, they won't shave and they don't tuck their, their shirts in. And if I were a younger generation that didn't have my shirt tucked in, my hair was a little bit funky. I'd say, yeah, but I didn't run up 33 trigger in debt, old man. Um, you know, you and your crowd, you, you and your group are the ones that, have basically bankrupted the nation. Maybe my shirt's not tucked in. Maybe my music's a little funky. Ah, but who can say that? Because we have the Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd, so mm-hmm. who can accuse us? of? That's what my oldest son always says. 
my music's funky. <laughs> dark, dark side of the moon. You ever, you ever, daddy, daddy, you ever listen to dark side of the moon? I'm like, yeah, I have. Okay. Let's just let that speak for itself. Okay. My music's funky. Um, anyway, so let's go to this. Cause to me, this is kind of interesting. So the debt, I went back to 1929. Why 29? Uh, the great depression. I mean, I thought that was a good place to begin. Uh, the market crashed in 1929. Uh, we were $17 billion in debt. Now, you know, we had the Dust Bowl drought. We had um, a Hoover raising taxes. Uh, we had the New Deal during that, you know, that period of time. But even after that, from 1929 to 1941, the debt went from $17 billion to $49 billion. I mean, from 29 to 41. So that's 12 years. And we had a lot happen. I mean, we had the market crash. We had Hoover raising taxes. We had the New Deal, the implementation of the New Deal. We know what came along with that. Social Security. Um, uh, we in in the, uh, the end of the Depression was in what, 1937 or 38 or 39. Um, we know that FDR increased spending. He raised taxes to do what? To pay for the New Deal. But even with all that, Josh, even in those 12 years, the debt went from $17 billion to $49 billion. I mean, that's a big increase, but that's 12 years. And then you get to 1942. What happened in 42? What happened December 7, 1941? A day that will live in infamy. I mean, the day the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. So from 42 to 45, you ready for this? Our debt went from $72 billion to $259 billion. Wartime debt. I mean, we're in the throes of the Second World War. Um, we come out with the Bret Bretton Woods Agreement. I mean, it was really the establishment of the American Empire. I mean, it's a lot of what we've been talking about here, here recently. But you've got from, I mean, I just think that's, uh, you, you had a lot happen um, in, in stimulus policies from 29 to 41, but it didn't drive the debt anywhere near like 42 to 45. So in 42, 72 billion, 45, 259 billion, defense spending somewhere between tripled and quadrupled. So we really pump money into our defense sector. I guess we understand that uh, because we eventually established ourselves as the dominant force and we've lived, all of us have lived in the American century by and large. Um, I, I just, I highlighted that. Um, one, two, three, four years, 42, 43, 44, 45, uh, began 72 billion, ended up 259 billion. And we really kind of plugged along after that. I mean, we really did. It went from 259 and 45 to 269 and 46, from 269 back to 258. So we ran a surplus in 46, 47, uh, from 258 to 252, from 47 to 48. Um, 49, 253, 1950, 257, 1951, 255, 1952, 259, 1953, 266, 1954, 271. You see where JFK budget, JFK budgets and Cuban Missile Crisis 298, um, USAID Vietnam, JFK killed, 
306. But they've got these big moments during the year. Um, and then we started our war on poverty in 1964. And the debt went from 312 to 908 billion. The war on poverty created a lot of policies that cost the American taxpayer a bunch of money. I'm not blaming LBJ for all of that because I think Nixon, uh, you had wage price controls and, and stagflation. Nixon ended, I mean, this is part of the most important, Nixon ended the gold standard in 1973. So the, the dollar was not based on some hard, tangible commodity asset like gold. Um, so from, from the beginning of the war on poverty, through the Vietnam, excuse me, through the Nixon um, ending the gold standard, the debt went from to three hundred twelve billion to nine hundred eight billion. I mean, that's a big jump. That's tripling of the debt, basically in the LBJ Richard Nixon era. I mean, we'll call it that because Kennedy was what president for a year and a half, a couple of years, somewhere thereabout. Um, so you can't blame Kennedy a lot for the debt because he was assassinated in office, the majority of these decisions were made by a Democrat and a Republican. The biggest decision the Democrat made was the war on poverty. In my opinion, the biggest decision the Republican made was ending the gold standard, and we really began seeing our debt escalate. But nothing escalated the debt. You ready? You ready to hang up on me and, and find another talk show host? You know where I'm headed. Reagan. Tax cuts and defense spending. Mm. Mm. Okay. Tax cuts and defense spending. In 1981, <laughs> when Reagan took office, got elected in 80. I mean, you can't blame him for 80 because he gets elected in November of 1980, gets sworn in in January of 81. Inherited a mess. I mean, when, when, when Reagan got elected, the budget deficit was $998 billion, roughly a trillion bucks. When Reagan left office in 1988, I would have been 89. Okay, let's say when Reagan left office in 1989, it was $2.9 trillion. Whoa. In eight years, Ronald Reagan, the great tax cutter, the pro-business deregulator, but increased defense funding, spending probably more than any American president ever has. I mean, he really and truly did. And when you cut taxes and invest in defense, you spend a bunch of money you don't have. I mean, I'm sorry, you just do. And out of that came, once again, the Reagan era. I mean, the most conservative era, right? I mean, he's our conservative hero. But the most conservative hero or the most conservative president, the person that we perceive has to have been the most conservative president, the debt went from or the deficit went from less than a trillion, barely $998 billion, to two point, uh, let me get this straight. Two point five, two point eight five seven trillion um, dollars. Mm, okay, so the Republicans aren't the hawks, the budget hawks that they insist they are. I want to take a break. Come back and we'll talk Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Clinton. You talking about spending some money? It all started with, it really and truly did all start with Reagan. We were fighting a Cold War. Well, tripled, I mean, tr between tripling yeah. and quadrupling defense spending. Yeah. Take a break. Back in a few.
843-661-0937. I think Rev is angry with me because uh. I have shined a bright light on uh, the Reagan era. <laughs> and it both made... uh, getting a little blasphemous in recent weeks, it <laughs> well, seems. I, I guess. <laughs> you're you're mean, hitting me where it hurts. But I mean, the I numbers mean, are the numbers, yeah. and you knew this. I mean, you, weren't, I mean this, this, you knew that Reagan spent a bunch of money. Yeah. Um, the 80s were great fun, though, yeah, weren't they? They were good fun. And, and we were busy winning a Cold War. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, increased defense spending to a level that broke the, the Soviet Union. Um, I've often said, and I get in trouble when I say this with some of the conservative audience, but um, Reagan gets more credit than he deserves in the win of the Cold War. He had capitalism on his side. Um, the Russians, or excuse me, the Soviets had communism. And in a, a war of, of, you know, money and attrition, the capitalist normally wins over, over the communists. But let's go back over this now. I mean, we, we've, we've, we've established this, you know, fighting a war is expensive. I mean, there's no doubt about it. So when you go back and look at 42 through 45, and you see that it went from 72 billion to 259 billion, I think Republicans and Democrats would accept that as you do what you got to do, man. I mean, you do what you got to do. You got to borrow money, print money, find money, dig money out of the backyard, find it in the mattress. I mean, you fight Nazi Germany. You do what you got to do. I mean, you just all hands on deck. You convert industrial plants into military industrial uh, manufacturing companies. You just do what you got to do. And, and America became great as a result of that. So, you know, you could probably argue the greatest money ever invested in the American experiment was from 42 through 45 and the deficit spending it took to advance our military. We tripled or nearly quadrupled our defense spending, but we were the last man standing at the end of the second world war. You get to the, to the 1980s and you're right. I mean, you know, um, Carter Malays and the, I mean, the, the, the interest rates. I mean, I think the fed rate was 20%. Remember Paul Volcker said the only way to strangle inflation is to, you know, raise interest rates to a place where they've never been raised uh, before. But then Reagan comes in, cuts taxes, uh, increased defense spending, and during his watch, or on his watch, the debt went from about a trillion, $998 billion, to two point, uh, and I want to make sure I get this right, $2.857 trillion. Let's go to Clinton. You ready to give the devil his due? When Bill Clinton was elected... The deficit was $4.4 trillion. He was elected in, no, I'm sorry, he was elected in 90, right? No, 92. 92, you're right, yeah. 92. Um, George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush. Um, you're right, George H.W. Bush. That would have been the first Iraq war. That would have been the SNL crisis. Um, okay, let's do this. When Bush got, when H.W. got elected, uh, the deficit was 2.857. When he left opposite, the deficit was 3.665 trillion. So I now read, read my lips, right. no new taxes. And then he raised taxes. Um, but in all honesty, the four years of George H.W. Bush, you didn't see a dramatic increase in the federal debt. Clinton gets elected. And he did have a war. He did. Uh, yeah, an excursion. Um, yeah. A little dust up there in Kuwait. De Desert Shield. Yeah, Desert Shield in Kuwait. Um, so Clinton gets elected in 92. We can't hold that number against him. So in 93, Clinton comes to Washington the deficit is $4.4 trillion. When he leaves in, what, 2000? Yeah, he left in 2000. Yep. The debt was, whoa, you ready? $5.6 trillion. So in eight years of a Clinton presidency, 
the federal deficit went from $4.4 trillion to $5.6 trillion. You got to give the guy credit. Now, now, Republicans like to say, yeah, but it was Gingrich. I mean, it was Newt Gingrich in his ear. Okay. Uh, but he had, I mean, he, he, he proposed presidential budgets that were not outrageous. Um, he agreed. You ready? He, as a Democrat, agreed to welfare reform. We had, um, what, Glass-Steagall, I think, was repealed during the Clinton administration. But, but in all honesty, a Democrat president presided over eight years of a pretty stable economy, and the debt didn't explode. I mean, the deficit did not explode, only went up $1.2 trillion in eight years. Let's get to George W. Bush. You ready? I mean, Bush, uh, how many times did we hear this from Democrats? W inherited a surplus. I mean, we've heard that over and over and over again. I mean, there, there was a there was a yearly surplus, but we had a federal deficit. I mean, it was not it was an aggregate. I mean, we had accumulated over since 1929 about five trillion dollars. Excuse me, yeah, five trillion in federal debt. Um, so George W. Bush gets elected in 2000. Now we know what happened in 2001. Uh, the 9/11 attacks. Um, they passed some of this legislation, the war on terror. Remember that? I mean, it was about 16 of articles of legislation that were basically under the guise of a war on, on terror. But when, uh, when, when, excuse me, when Clinton left office, it was 5.6 trillion. When Trump, excuse, not Trump, when Bush got into office, he inherited a 5.674 trillion dollar deficit. When he left, it was 10.25. So he doubled the deficit. Well, we'd been through 9-11, more on terror, and the crash of 2008. Yeah, and he inherited that. I mean, excuse me, he, um, he did not pass that along to Barack Obama. And most people say one of the most decent things George W. Bush ever did was bail the banks out and initiate um, quantitative easing for the first time in American history. It's interesting, nobody remembers that. What is quantitative easing? I mean, now a lot of us know what that is. Back then, nobody knew what that was, but we had a very activist fed at that time. But the war on terror, and I think we'll agree to this, the war on terror drove the debt from somewhere around $5.5 trillion to somewhere around um, $10 trillion, and that just opened the floodgates. I mean, that really and truly did. I mean, the deficit went crazy after that, and I got to believe, because I actually highlighted quantitative easing showed up in 2008, and the American Fed has never been the same. I mean, I don't know who came up with the idea. I, I really can tr- expand the money supply, grow the money supply in the name of macroeconomic stimulus, and it became the norm. So when Obama gets to office, the deficit is $10.025 trillion. The next year, $11.9 trillion. Uh, the next year, $13.5 trillion. The next year, $14.7 trillion, $16.6 trillion, $17.8 trillion, $18.2 trillion, $19.5 trillion, uh, but $20.24 trillion. I mean, it just it, it took off like a rocket ship. So from 8 to 16, the debt went from $10 trillion, I'm rounding off here, to $20 trillion under Obama's watch. And then we know um, when Trump gets elected, in 16, it's $19.5 trillion. When Trump leaves in 20, it's $26.9 trillion. 
It's $33 trillion today. But the two words that stick out is quantitative easing. I mean, do you know, tax cuts, defense spending, presidents do that. I mean, they do. Presidents invest in the military or they don't. Uh, they cut taxes or they raise taxes. There, there's a philosophical, ideological debate to be had about what's right, what's wrong, when, where, how, by how much. I mean, that, that is fundamentally political. And I accept and appreciate and, and really like those debates. You know, what should the top marginal effective tax rate in America be? Um, Rev has an opinion. Josh has an opinion. I have an opinion. How much money should we spend to keep Americans safe and secure? Uh, what should the defense budget be? I mean, th- those are very important political issues. But quantitative easing, quantitative easing might be satanic. <laughs> I mean, it, it really and truly. Well, you can see the trend was about a trillion dollars a year added to the debt. After, after quantitative easing. Quantitative easing started. And somebody said, wow. We can do that? Hmm. Okay. You mean we can print money we don't have? We can appropriate money we don't have. The Fed will buy the debt with money they don't have by just simply expanding the money supply, infusing more capital into the economy. Yeah, that's exactly what quantitative easing And there does. appears to be no consequence yeah. to this. And, well, and until you wake up one day and you're $33 trillion in debt, right. and you've got inflation as you've never had it before. Take a break. Back in a few. We're back. 843-661-0937 is our number. Eben Brown, Fox News Radio's Eben Brown from Miami is with us. Eben, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning. Hope you're feeling better. I think we heard you were under the weather yesterday. Hope uh, things. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, was, you know, a little bug or something like that. But thank you very much. Good deal. Good deal. Let's, uh, I want to give you my interpretation of what you're here to talk about. And, and I know I'm wrong, but I'll say it anyway. Um <laughs> No, I mean, I, I read some of the uh, some of the DeSantis law, uh, you know, the the legislation being a bandy about the state of Florida, and and I and I'm paraphrasing here, and I'm trying to be a bit provocative. But it seems to me that DeSantis is arguing that diversity, equity, and inclusion are absolute rights. I mean, you know, free speech is free speech, but once a university, a public university in particular, begins practicing, that can become social activism. Am I close? I think you're close. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of the overarching theme against the um, the anti DEI uh, take and and uh, uh, and actions that uh, Governor DeSantis and and to be fair, it's not just Governor DeSantis. It's a a, a super majority of the uh, of the Florida state legislature uh, that has uh, been uh, working on these things for a couple of years now. And what's being bandied about now is a rule. That would affect Florida's uh, public university system uh, that would prohibit the school from spending public money on those types of activities uh, that anything that would essentially favor one demographic group over another uh, or one that would exclude a demographic group uh, from from others based on these same core uh, principles of so-called diversity, equity and inclusion. Uh, which often means um, race or religion uh, or, or those types of things. So uh, there seems to be not much controversy, I think, in the Florida legislature over this or even within the Florida Board of Governors, which is the which manages the university system. Um, I think the opposition is coming from certain groups on campus that have been pushing the DEI uh, mantra and mentality uh, for a very long time and have tried to uh, – 
uh, institutionalize those within the, the bureaucracy of college campuses. That is very well explained. Evan, thank you for your time, and we will talk soon, sir. You got it. That's kind of an interesting subject and topic. And, um, I mean, obviously, I want to ask Evan about Palestine and Israel because he has such a um, uh, a, a strong and personal opinion. I mean, he's talked about his um, his grandparents hiding under a table, um, you know, for fear of the Nazis. And, I mean, it's just very, very compelling the day he shared that story uh, with us. And I followed him on Twitter a lot since then. And when, when I saw the college campus and I saw Evan Brown's name beside it, I said to myself, okay, this is an opportunity to talk about these, um, these anti-Israel, didn't say anti-Jew, Josh, these anti-Israel sentiments that seem to be widely accepted at elite universities. I don't know about some of the, um, I mean, I don't know that I've seen this at the University of South Carolina, Clemson. I mean, they, they wouldn't be elite universities, um, but there's not this, uh, what did I write down yesterday? Let me make sure, elite college to media pipeline. I mean, you know, the, um, the major, the, the, the majority of reporting done in America today is not, not done by graduates of the University of South Carolina or Clemson. I mean, the majority of newsrooms are staffed by or managed by, you know, individuals who went to elite universities, and these elite universities tend to be, I have no idea why, but they tend to be very anti-Israel. And I do believe that you got to be careful in saying it's anti-Semitic. I mean, anti-Semitic is this anti-Jew. Anti-Israel is something else. And and I, and I would imagine, and it's not for me to decide, hey, are you uh, anti-Jew or anti-Israel? It's, it's obvious you're anti-Israel. I mean, your, your sentiments, your pronouncements, your behavior, your, your you know, adaptation of beliefs is, is anti-Israel. But, but, but I want to be careful in that doesn't necessarily make you anti-Semitic. I mean, maybe you are. I mean, maybe it is, but I just think there's, for clarification reasons, we need to be careful in saying that everybody who is anti-Israel or anti-Semitic. Let's go to the phone. Anthony in North Carolina. Good morning, Anthony. You're on. Oh, hey, how's going on? Hey, Anthony. Um, one thing, um, thing to chew on right quick, I was watching the game last week, Ken, the Patriots game. And, you know, it was the Israel thing going on. So anybody that was a coach that was Jewish, they had a spotlight. So they were having a small uh, segment with Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots. And I don't know if he meant to say it or not, though, but he was saying and showed them that downstairs of the Gillette Stadium that they have a bunker that monitors got the number over 400-something it's a large number, but they monitor so many people, social media, and other accounts that if they get anything that that's, that's a red flag as far as the Jews, they report it to the FBI, to the uh, the social media places. They monitor all over America in the bottom of the Gillette Stadium, and he was bragging about it. But uh, my call is on this right here. I did a little uh, digging and some uh, I would agree to check out. But why are they bombing the place like crazy? Are they supposed to have 200 or 300 hostages there? That don't make sense. So I dug a little more, and I found out that just like we did with al-Qaeda way back in the day, do your homework, and you'll find out that the government of Israel funded and created Hamas back in the day to fight against something I forgot. But... Israel created Hamas. Um, that's all, fellas. 
Thank you, Anthony. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. I mean, I, I've read a million takes. I mean, I know more than that than I did, but I certainly don't. I mean, I'm not uh, a professor on Middle Eastern history. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I've been very clear. The majority of my distinguishing Israel from Ukraine, because I am being hypocritical. I mean, I'm being very hypocritical in saying, you know, the butchering in Ukraine and, and, and the war in Ukraine, I, I just, I, it's, it's easier for me to say thank you, but no thank you to American involvement. It's much harder for me to, um, to turn a blind eye to, and I'm not saying turn a blind eye, but, but it's hard for me. I'll give an example. I mean, if I were a member of Congress, I would vote today to help fund Israel from Gaza, and I'm talking about Hamas and Hezbollah in particular, uh, fanatical Islam. I mean, fanatical Islam that wishes to vanquish, you know, Israel from the planet Earth. I would fund, to some degree, Josh, the, the preservation of Israel as the Jewish state. I'm not funding it if Ukraine funding is attached. I mean, I, I would vote against that bill. I can't be that inconsistent. I mean, I can't be that hypocritical. I, I would argue for a standalone bill, whatever the number is. I mean, I'm not in the room. I don't know how much $14 billion helps. I know that's the number on McConnell and Biden's bill, and it is bipartisan. I mean, it's Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden. They cut a deal, uh, the White House with the Senate Minority Leader, because they know they need bipartisan support. I don't think it flies in the House. In fact, I'm not sure it flies in the Senate today. I think J.D. Vance, Vance is on the record saying he's not for it. Um, I don't know where uh, the Democrats are. They tend to vote in lockstep one with another. The Republicans are the one in somewhat of a uh, internal squabble. But I would vote today, if I were a Republican member uh, of the Senate or, or the other chamber, the House of Representatives, I would probably vote thumbs up on a standalone Israeli funding bill. I'm not voting for a bill that includes more money for Ukraine. I mean, it's sixty-six billion more for Ukraine. It's fourteen billion for Israel. It's another fourteen billion for border security. the The war in Israel has nothing to do with the war in Ukraine. So bring a bill to the floor about Israel and let's vote up or down. Bring a bill to the floor about Ukraine and let's vote up or down. But in typical shenanigan fashion, uh, the Uniparty. And here I am with a, with a terminology. The Uniparty is trying to do it in the uh, not dark of night, uh, but but rather in a in a very misleading sort of way. And if someone, uh, Republican or Democrat, doesn't vote for the bill, then you know they, they they're not they're not as loyal to our most consistent ally that we've ever had in Israel, and that's just unfair. They don't want any more American taxpayer dollars invested. In Ukraine, and I would be, I would be very much on on that team. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number, and it is the Uniparty's bill. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It is. Um, I mean, and if you're, and if you're, I mean, go back to what Breeze said a few moments ago. I think you've got to ask yourself that, and it's a little bit like, um, I mean, you've seen these stories about someone puts a note in a bottle, a cork in top of the bottle. They drop the bottle in the ocean at the end of the Garden City Pier, and it ends up in Brazil, you know, 10 years later. Uh, where does that bottle go? I, I don't, you know, how does it get there? What sort of sea currents and, and jet streams and, and you know, what uh, flows? I mean, I, who knows? I mean, I, you know, 
um, Gulf Streams. There, there you go, the Gulf Stream and, and all these other sorts of things. Um, but I think it would be interesting for every dollar printed, where does it go? Where, where does it end up? Um, who benefits mostly from quantitative easing? I mean, quantitative easing. I look during the break. I want to make sure I'm getting uh, this is the official definition for, uh, per Investopedia. Um, quantitative easing is a monetary policy action where a central bank purchases, purchases predetermined amounts of government bonds or other financial assets in order to stimulate economic activity. Um, it's, a, um, it's a novel form of monetary policy that came into wide application after the financial crisis of 2007. Well, I mean, it, it did become more accepted in 2007. I mean, it was not invented in 2007, but it's the first time the American government decided to, you know, okay, uh, the, the, the Fed's balance sheet is going to, you know, I guess hold some of these, not investments, some of these purchases. And, and you know, I mean, the Fed's balance sheet is what, eight point, it's about $8 trillion today. It's been as high as 9.5 or, or $6 trillion, maybe $7.5 trillion today. They, they've done some tightening. I mean, they've quantitative tightening. Um, the M2 money supply went from 15 to 22 trillion from 22 trillion back to about 21 um, trillion. But if you really track the debt, it's it's all about two groups of people. I mean, it really and truly is, and it's about defense spending and entitlements. And the Republicans have historically looked after the defense contractor sector. The Democrats have historically looked after looked after people who just can't make it on their own. Will they make it on their own? Uh, could they make it on their own? How many fall through the cracks? How many need safety net? How many looking for a safety hammock? But that's where the Democrats have invested the majority of uh, deficit spending. It's been in entitlement programs, growing entitlement programs, giveaways and freebies and whatnot. Um, I would imagine if you're a Republican, you're less offended by the money the military industrial complex gets than you are some of the what what Republicans would call freeloaders. I mean, I, I'm not saying everybody that receives Medicaid or food stamps or some other government benefit. I'm not saying every single person is a freeloader, but there's a there's a lot in there. I mean, there there are millions of people in America today um, that are receiving taxpayer dollars to do absolutely nothing. Now, now there's a percentage that can't. But I mean, they've had an injury, a disability, some sort of unfortunate event in their life. I mean, I get that. Um, but but the reality is we've never thoroughly investigated what percentage that is. Um, and on the other side, I mean, if I were a Democrat, I would say, okay, I get it. You don't like the lady at the grocery store with the latest, greatest iPhone and an EBT card. I mean, I get that. That, that irks you to no end. You know what irks me? To pay $600 for a toilet seat. And a defense contractor pocket all the money. I mean, it, to, to me, right. for the country to get better, we've got to be equally bothered by both of those. I mean, it's insanity that we allow as many people to enjoy the benefit of hardworking American taxpayers when they don't do squat to produce. The only production they bring to the economy is when they go to Walmart and spend your money on stuff they consume. I mean, that is their contribution to the economy. And if they didn't get money, the economy would contract by necessity. I mean, if we if we took a trillion dollars in giveaways a year out of the economy, guess what? Well, I mean, that'd be a high number. If we took $350 billion a year 
in giveaways that people don't deserve to get, that's $350 billion that Walmart doesn't get. That's $350 billion that uh, the local grocery store doesn't get. Um, the restaurants don't get. So there's going to be some reciprocal effect in taking that money out of the economy. But for us to really find our way, Republicans have to be as concerned about these military-industrial complex you know, dynasties getting their money. Democrats have to say, we can't pay people to do nothing. I mean, we can't penalize productivity and reward non-productivity to the extremes that we have now. And if you're running a business in America today, you know your biggest competitor for, for your workforce is the government. I mean, it's not the business down the street. It, it's not the restaurant next door. The government has created an attitude and entitlement that, you know, I don't have to work there if I don't want to because there's 77 government programs. And if I can figure out a way to benefit from 10 or 12, I can make as much doing nothing as I could waiting tables, working the counter, doing some of the menial tasks in our, you know, unskilled labor force economy. That's just not the American way. Take a break. Back in a few. So, Josh, are you heading the calls off of the other studio? I mean, we've seen the phone ring multiple times and nobody's coming on the air. Oh, well, there, there is a reason for that, but I probably shouldn't say okay. on the air. Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. 843-661-0937 <laughs> okay. is, our, is our number. Um, so when you look at, okay, let's do this, because I think this could be kind of kind of an enlightening experience. So let's go back and look. I mean, let's go to 2000. Uh, I think we all, I think everybody understands the amount of money Americans borrowed to fight the Second World War. We did not have the money coming into the federal government coffers to fund a full-scale world war. I mean, I don't think anybody would expect that. I mean, you got a rainy day fund. Okay, but a rainy day fund for that, really? So you do what you got to do. I mean, you borrow money, you issue government debt, um, uh, savings bonds and T-bills and the conventional way, you know, the government's borrow money, you pay an interest to those who made that investment uh, and it was probably the best investment America's ever made, to be honest with you, because you and I have grown up in the American century. I mean, we've lived the Bretton Woods Agreement and the United Nations being in New York and America kind of putting the puzzle back together as it um, chose to. And and then you've got the, you know, the next big run on debt would have been Reagan. Now, excuse me, would have been LBJ, uh, the war on poverty. Uh, the war on poverty, is, uh, as I said earlier, began in 19, or LBJ's legislation, civil rights, legislation and war on poverty legislation was in 1964. Um, the budget was, or excuse me, the deficit was $312 billion. Um, it didn't take long to get to $908 billion. But then Nixon, and I think these are all important markers, Reb, um, LBJ, 1964, war on poverty. Oh, that basically said people are poor and the government needs to do something about it. Good luck with that. I mean, really and truly, good luck with that. I mean, I think the civil rights legislation was honorable. Uh, no question about it. Uh, I am 1,000% supportive of civil rights legislation affording each and everybody the same rights, period. I mean, I think you've got to be a little bit loony to not go along with that. But the war on poverty was, you know, you kind of scratch your head, okay, there are poor people in America, and the government's going to fix that. We're not going to put economic systems in place that allow people to work hard and benefit 
we're going to say you being poor isn't really your fault. I mean, the reason you're poor is probably not your fault. So, so the ones that have done well in the American economic system probably owe you a little bit of their share of the pie, so to speak. I mean, that's kind of the war in poverty. And then you get to um, Nixon, and the one thing Nixon did was, um, you know, the gold standard. I mean, there didn't, we couldn't print money we didn't have if we didn't have gold to backstop, you know, as the tangible commodity slash um, asset. So in 1973, the deficit was $458 billion. Why do I say 73? Because that's when the gold standard ended. And by 1980, it had gone from $458 billion to $908 billion. I mean, it had almost doubled. And then Reagan gets elected. What did Reagan do? What is Reagan famous for? Tax cuts, right? I mean, the Reagan tax cuts combined with about a quadrupling in defense spending. And Reagan was bad for the deficit. I mean, let's let's be honest. I mean, the majority of us consider Reagan to be a conservative hero, a conservative warrior. And in deregulation matters and uh, uh, pro-business matters, he was. But, but his tax cuts combined with his increased funding of the military led to big deficits. I'm not saying, you know, you shouldn't have increased the funding than the military. I mean, Rev made a point, Cold War. I mean, what do you do? Let the Soviets spend twice as much as you do and just hope and pray and cross your fingers that things work out? I mean, I'm not saying, you know, some of this shouldn't have been done, but, but I think we've got to be careful in saying the debt is all about Democrats spending money we don't have. That's just not the case. The Republicans have spent a lot of money they don't have. The majority of Republican deficit spending was what? Military. Defense spending. The majority of Democrat deficit spending was what? Entitlements. People who they didn't believe got a fair shake and deserved a fairer shake, and the government has the ability to print money and give money away, and we're going to do that in the name of leveling the playing field, creating socioeconomic and, and you know, and a societal justice. And, and, and I, I just believe that if we're ever going to address the debt issue in America, the Republicans have to admit that they probably went a little extreme on defense spending, and the Democrats have to admit that there are probably more people than they're willing to admit getting government taxpayer dollar benefit, taxpayer dollar paid benefits that probably don't deserve it. I mean, those are the drivers of the debt. Uh, I'm not talking about Medicare and Social Security. I mean, I'm talking about Medicaid and, and some of these, I mean, the food stamp program, uh, the housing assistance, the a lot of the subsidies that have been given away. Um, I mean, we, we what, what happened in ARPA and the American Rescue, well, ARPA is the American Rescue Plan. Uh, uh, what was the other? CARES. Uh, you know, the CARES 1 and CARES 2 bill. I mean, where did the majority of that money go? Well, I mean, it went to consumers. It went to Josh and Rev and Ken, but who ended up with the money? Is it still in your bank account? No. I mean, it's probably in Bentonville, Arkansas or wherever mm-hmm. Uh, some of these, you know, corporations are are headquartered. Let's go to the phone. Rick and Sumter listening to WDXY. Morning, Rick. Hey, good morning, man. We're all over the place this morning. <laughs> um, no, I just and I'll try to throw something out there to throw a wrench in it. But Ukraine, you know, on the surface, I kind of agree with you, but I am a historian. And when is the only time in history that Russia has been a world influential superpower? 
Mm, that would have been during, I mean, that, that would have been what led up to the Cold War. Right. When the Soviet Union, they were a nuclear superpower. Correct. Russia has always had an inferiority complex in Europe, and Putin wants that back. Ukraine is just a stepping stone. So do we allow Putin to rebuild the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union? Because that is his end game. Um, the reason a lot of people, and you mentioned it, they're not anti-Semitic, but they are anti-Zionism. Because the idea of the Jewish state, a theocracy, having our full support goes against a lot of the principles of America, if you really want to dig down deep. Rick, so, Rick, is Russia still a nuclear superpower? Yes. They have the ability to first strike. They have the ability to supply other rogue nations, which makes them actually, I don't know if I'd give them superpower status, but what I would give them is very influential force of destabilization. So what did they gain? If I mean, let's play out worst case scenario. They, they take Ukraine. They invade Poland. What, what do they gain? I mean, do, do you really believe that Vladimir Putin thinks he can create? I mean, you, you just said, and, I, and I'll agree with you, they are still a nuclear superpower. They just don't have the, econ, the, the, the economy that, that you would expect a nuclear superpower to have. They're not China. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I think China is the geopolitical adversary of America's future. Um, right. And, but, but, but the point, and this is the, the I mean, and I, I have these fair-minded debates with, with friends of mine who disagree with me on, on Ukraine. If Russia takes over Ukraine and were to invade Poland or, or some of the other, you know, bordering nations that are members of NATO, are they, are they really and truly trying to create an, an a kind, of, kind of an economic superpower in conjunction with their nuclear superpower? That's what I can't figure out. I mean, what is Putin's end game? That's what I think. And I'll throw one up at you. I was talking with a friend of mine who is a Filipino um, Army intelligence officer. And he said, Rick, where do you see the world problems? And me thinking I'm a smarter guy than I am. Well, the Middle East, he yawned. Eastern Europe, he yawned. I said, China, he lit up like a light bulb and asked me if I could name one time in history that China started a war of aggression. <laughs> and I couldn't. And the fact is, there isn't one. Um, China is economics. That's what they're about. They have, um, they're a communist country, a totalitarian country, but they have figured out a way to weaponize capitalism and use it against us while we're leaning more socialist. But and they're not expansionist at heart. They, they've never shown a desire to dominate the world. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, economically, they have become the world's manufacturing base. And they know yeah. the influence they carry by becoming the world's economic base. Um, and I hear these military-industrial complex experts and, and spokespeople talk about China taking Taiwan. And maybe maybe that's the case. I mean, I, I can't read China's mind. But, but historically, China's never done things like that. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that, my man. Um, and that's kind of where I land. I just can't for the life of me. And there are people far brighter than I that have such a, uh, you know, a, a greater wealth of knowledge on Russia and the former Soviet Union. The point I'm trying to make is whether 
whether we stop Russia in Ukraine or not, whether we invest heavily in Ukraine or not, Russia is a nuclear superpower today and probably forever. So what do they gain by invading other territories? Well, I mean, if, if, I mean, I get Ukraine, but but Poland and some of the I, I just don't understand that for the lot. I don't. I mean, but once again, I have a limited understanding of that part of the world. I mean, I know enough to be dangerous. I guess is what I'm arguing. But but if you're trying to say if you're not careful, Putin will become a uh, you know a nuclear superpower. No, today, no matter what happens in Ukraine, Russia is a bona fide nuclear superpower. I mean, I think they're a one-trick pony. I mean, it's energy, energy, energy for their economy. That's how they generate revenue. That's how they make investments in their in their military. But they are a nuclear superpower whether they succeed in Ukraine or not. Take a break. Back at a few. The point I try to make, and I don't think I did a good job of it, I mean, I, I don't doubt and never have that Russians are expansionist. And, and they'll take over as much territory as allowed. I mean, I, I'm not disputing any of that. But but if we're, if we're arguing that Russia is trying to become a nuclear superpower, they already are. I mean, they have about, what, 6,000 nuclear warheads? I think they have sixteen or 1,700 deployed missiles. I mean, they've got more nuclear warheads than we do. The good old U.S. of A. I think they've got a, a couple of hundred fewer deployed missiles than we do. China's at about 300, 350, 400-ish, somewhere um, thereabout. Deploy, I mean, deployed missiles. I'm talking about warheads ready to launch at a moment's notice. But if we're arguing, I understand the expansionist argument. I, I get that. I, I'm, I'm accepting of that debate. But, but to suggest that Putin is invading Ukraine so he can once again become a nuclear superpower, they've never lost that status. They've never lost nuclear superpower status. We, we've got about 17 or 1,800 deployable warheads. I mean, they could be launched today if necessary. Russia has a couple of hundred fewer than we do. So, so yeah, I mean, we won the Cold War. Their economy broke down. But but they still they still have enormous nuclear capacity and capability, and invading Ukraine doesn't change that, or failure or success in Ukraine doesn't change that, in my humble opinion, one bit at all. Let's go to the phone. Charles in Lamarck. Morning, Charles. Good morning. A um, couple of things. I heard that word theocracy again. I just want to remind everyone that the population of Israel is less than 50% religious Jews, that they have Arab Muslims on the Knesset, that they have Arab Muslims on the Supreme Court, and they have Christians, and they have about 40% non-religious Jews. So it is a Jewish state from a heritage standpoint, not from a religious standpoint, in my opinion. Um, Ken, sometimes we mix up the words deficit and debt and they are two different words with two different meanings and i was listening to uh you know a richard nixon 900 and some odd million dollar deficit and i was just shocked well that was the amount of the debt not the deficit the deficit is we said we budgeted six six trillion dollars this year and we spent 7.8 7.8 trillion so we have a 1.8 trillion dollar deficit 
the debt is how much we owe if you add everything up over time. And it's two completely different things. And looking back at your numbers, Reagan, you're right. He ran it up. He tripled it, which is about the same thing that happened during the eight years you're talking about of Johnson and Nixon. They tripled it. It kept getting tripled until Clinton came along. And Clinton and the Republican House did a real good job of controlling deficit spending during that eight years. Um, it's a shame that his his wife doesn't look at things fiscally like he does. Anyway, a few thoughts off the top of my head on this 39-degree morning in rural <laughs> Darlington County. Y'all have a great day. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. Yeah, these are these are running tabs. I mean, these are aggregates. Uh in other words, uh, Reagan didn't run up, uh, you know, a trillion-dollar debt. He inherited a, a $400 billion debt, and it ended up. I mean, it, it's kind of an, it's a running number. Um, the yearly debt ends up being the um, – or the yearly deficit ends up being um, a contributor to the total Added amount to the of debt, debt that, that we're in. We're, we're, our deficit is not $33 trillion. We're $33 trillion in debt. We have a yearly deficit this year of about $1.75-ish um, trillion. I just thought it was interesting when you really go back and um, and kind of analyze. And, and once again, this is one man's opinion. Somebody else could read this and, and discern something differently. But, you know, we plugged along until, until um, the New Deal. And when, when the recession hit or the depression hit, um, we really began spending money. But it really changed in 42 when we tripled, nearly quadrupled our defense spending. But I think Republicans and Democrats would agree, probably a wise investment to have made. Uh, now, if we lose the war and, and Nazi German, we're all speaking German. I mean, my grandfather used to say that. If it had not been for, you know, Truman, we'd all be speaking German today. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but, but, you know, it's hard to argue that tripling the debt, you know, tripling the, uh, the deficit, well, the total debt. I mean, the yearly deficits led to the eventual debt, but tripling the yearly deficit was probably a wise investment in the American military in trying to, you know, win the war. I mean, that, at the end of the day, it's trying to, to win a war. And then, um, and then you know, everything else. I mean, I, I, the, the LBJ years are kind of sort of like the, the Reagan years. I mean, they were heavily invested in entitlements and a, and a war on poverty. The majority of Reagan debt was generated by, you know, military investments. You know, once again, I mean, Reagan increased defense spending as if we were in a, a full-fledged world war. And I, I guess to his point, we were. I mean, it was a cold war. And we were trying to, I, I don't know, just um, peace by strength. And and the Soviet Union crashed. And um, now I would argue their economy crashed. They're still a nuclear superpower. That's just one thing I think people fail to understand. Their economy is in shambles. Their economy failed. Capitalism won over socialism or communism in this case. And and I do think Reagan gets a little more credit than he deserves by his conservative bona fides. I think I think Reagan's tax cuts combined with increased military spending increased the the debt. Like like a Democrat. I mean, it really didn't. Now, we historically have argued, but that's money well spent. I mean, those are investments, you know, that need to be made in the American military, safety and security. 
Um, you know, if, if the government doesn't do anything else, it needs to keep its people safe. And this is a large part of keeping uh, the American public safe and secure. Take a break. I know we got a call. We'll get there as soon as we pay some bills. Back in a few. The late John Prine had a song, It's a Big Old Goofy World. It's a Big Old Complicated World. One of the complications in our world is health insurance. Um, everyone's situation is different. There, there aren't a lot of options to choose from now, not as much as there, as there once was. Um, but it's, a, I mean, it's 30% of America's the most expensive line item in their budget is health insurance. I mean, it's unbelievably expensive, um, especially if you eat what you kill like I do. If you're not a government employee or on some big group plan, I mean, it's a complicated and expensive ordeal. If you're under the age of 65, if you're reasonably healthy, and if you don't need some of the bells and whistles that the exchange forces you to buy, whether you need it or not. In other words, if a 60-year-old man and woman try to buy insurance on the health care exchange, they got to get maternity coverage. Um, you just don't need that. But anyway, it's a um, it's kind of socialized medicine. Uh, Christian Levis owns a company called Real Choice Healthcare. Um, you need to talk to Christian. You can save money, a lot of money, and I mean uh, this sincerely, 839-888-3970, 839-888-3970, or go to the website, realchoicehealthcare.com. Once again, if you're under the age of 65, reasonably healthy, and want to save 30 to 60%, call 839-888-3970, or go to Real choicehealthcare.com. Dr. Will Bolt is here with us. Morning. Um, am I wrong? Good morning, sir. Am I wrong? I mean, I know this isn't your expertise, but am I wrong when I say that the Soviet Union was a nuclear superpower? Russia still is Russia. a nuclear superpower. Right, once the Soviet Union collapsed, they didn't destroy those nuclear weapons. Sir, they're, they're, they certainly have them. They still have a, a massive arsenal, a stockpile. They may not be as well-maintained as they used to be, but a nuclear weapon that's only fifty percent effective compared to fully effective, still going to do a lot of going to do a lot of damage for out there. So no, they they have always been a nuclear superpower and somebody that we have to have to watch. So if Putin was an absolute nut, I mean, if he was just an absolute madman, <laughs> he would launch a nuclear attack what on someone. I mean, sure, I mean, that, right. but but he's not an absolute madman. I mean, he's he's a um, I mean, he's a power monger. He's sure, a former right. KGB. He's probably nostalgic about the former Absolutely. Soviet Union right. and restoring it he to its, its history. you know yeah. prominent position. But but mad men don't govern for as long as Vladimir Putin has. <laughs> He's very strategic. Very smart. He's sure. I mean he he knows where the bodies are buried because he buried a lot of them himself over there. I mean he has uh, outlasted a lot of his political opponents. And certainly, I mean he knows any preemptive strike. He's uh, he's going to wake up to a cruise missile for breakfast. I mean, as Barry Goldwater said, let's drop one through the men's room at the KGB. And so, I mean, certainly, right, any response would be met disproportionately by NATO, the United States, and all of our allies. So is it <laughs> America's position, or is it our job, Rev, Dr. Bolt, <laughs> to make sure we're the only nation on Earth with nuclear weaponry? I mean, here's where I'm headed. At times, we have... This concept of belief that we are the moral and the, right, the, 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 the moral, yeah, I mean, we're the moral and intellectual arbiters for everybody else in the world. 
we're entitled to have nuclear weapons. And nobody else. But right. nobody else is. I mean, <laughs> what, what sort of mindset well, is that? Well, it would certainly allow us to sleep much easier, right? It's, sure, it's, it it's game set match. It's checkmate. If we're the only guy who has this ultimate hammer over everybody else, essentially you, we could be able to impose our will over anybody else that we want. So the, there is a check on the United States of America, and just as, as we act as a check on Russia and had acted as a check on the Soviet Union during all of that time. So sure, in a perfect world, it would be nice for us. So does America need a check? I mean, what, what if America didn't have a check? I mean, are we that altruistic? Are, are we that, I mean, are really and truly, but think about this, are we that benevolent? Are we the nation? Are we the only honest and, and moral and ethical, you know, player in all of the geopolitics of the world? Right. I would say, of course, you could trust us if we're the only ones. Everybody else in the world probably wouldn't be as, as trusting as I am. So but certainly, isn't that the game being played, Dr. Bolt? I, I agree mean, with that, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I just, I, I look at it this way, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Help me here. I don't think the people of China trust their government. No. I don't think the people of Moscow trust their government. Do they trust us? I, I, I don't <laughs> think the people of America trust their government. <laughs> right. I'm going to be honest with the, you. There is something we have in common And I would argue right. that, that the general population of said nation need to be skeptical of their think, government I, leadership. Well, this was in a democracy. It's healthy if we're sort of questioning. Right? This is one of the old Jeffersonian ideas. You've ceased to be free if you can no longer question and criticize your government. That's maybe the big difference between the United States of America and China and the Soviet Union. We can do this. We can go on a blog, and we're not going to disappear during the night. And that's what I was hoping you'd bring up Jefferson because he had a lot to say about that. I mean, discontent. I mean, discontent right. is good in, in, a, in, in a republic. A little I mean, revolution now sure. and then is a good thing. I mean, he wrote and talked a lot about that. So I'm going to go down this road sure. uh, with you if you don't mind. Um there, there is a narrative, a pervasive narrative in mainstream media today that the Republicans can't get their feces consolidated, <laughs> that they're, they're just genuinely out of order. I mean, you know, you ask for this crazy, chaotic uh, leader of your party, yeah. and, and now the next thing you know, we're two weeks without two weeks the speaker. speaker. It's a little bit like the Pope, you know, trying to pick a new Pope. Remember the smoke and all? <laughs> waiting oh, on yes. the, oh. It looks like an outhouse, and there's no smoke to come out of the, uh, out of the outhouse. I saw a tweet uh, with that kind of meme on, on Twitter. But but in, in all honesty, isn't this somewhat reflective of what the founders intended? Hash this out in public. Right. It's, uh, in public, and again, we we're supposed to kind of come together and reach a consensus and compromise. But it's not supposed to be easy. Is no, it's, it's not say? supposed to be. And again, the founding fathers didn't anticipate two rigid political parties. And so again, what did they anticipate? They, we, there wouldn't be these organized political factions. Or if there were, you would have so many of them, 10 to 15, exactly, right word. It would then kind of force you to build a consensus. They established a winner-take-all system. So, again, it only makes sense to really have two political organizations or parties. There's there's no points. There are no rewards for second place at this time. And so you really can't build a consensus when you have just a couple of male contents in the Republican Party can mess up the entire thing. And the Democrats are like, you guys started this thing. This is your, your poop show. We're just going to sit back and watch. We'll bail you out if you make the first move, you know, and maybe we're going to pick who's going to be it. And then you can have some sort of a, I guess you might call it a unity government. It's an option on the table. I don't know if we're going to, if we're going to get there, but we're in uncharted waters. I mean, as a historian who likes politics, uh, what's going to happen and what's been happening the past couple of weeks and what's maybe going to happen today or throughout the rest of the week, if we can't get our, our house in order, 
Uh, it, I don't, it's not good for the country, but it's fun to watch. Okay, let me ask you this. You said that the founders were not fond of the duopoly. They did right, not this is have not that in they, mind. Sure. Right. Okay, what would they make of this? I mean, what would they make of two parties who have become so entrenched, yeah. so unbelievably powerful, and I'm talking about, if, if uh, you know, a, a, a write-in candidate, a third-party candidate, some sort of libertarian Green Party candidate. One of the, I mean, they have no chance. You know, they have oh, no sure. chance. These two parties have become so powerfully influential in American politics. What would Jefferson and Adams say about this duopoly? Well, again, Jefferson and Adams weren't here when we wrote the Constitution. They were around when we had the sort of the the creation of the political parties. But the guys who were in Philadelphia, Washington, Franklin. Uh, Sherman, these other guys, the, the founding fathers, then this is not what they had intended. Again, this We've had the same two political parties in the United States since the 1850s, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans. Their beliefs and opinions have evolved, shifted, and changed. But in the same two political parties have weathered the storms, uh, have been humiliated at the polls, have suffered terrible reverses, but yet keep coming back. And from time to time, maybe it looks like, oh, there's going to be some sort of a reform movement. Maybe a, a third party is going to emerge. But after one election cycle, they get crushed, beat back into the dust. But no, this is not what the founding fathers had envisioned. Again, we're, we're going to come together, hash things out. They're going to make concessions. All right? And there's going to be a sort of a compromise spirit in the United States. And again, we, we don't have that. What do you want? To, you want to get the majority. And so that way you can ram your priorities through, impose your will uh, on your defeated opponents. Maybe in the Senate, you might have to kind of compromise and trim your principles just because of the filibus. But in the House, to the victor belong the spoils. You get the majority. You can pass your bills through as long as you can hold your majority in tow. And, and maybe that's the lesson that in the 80s and the 90s, under Tip O'Neill, the Democrat, Newt Gingrich, the Republican, you didn't dare oppose the leadership. If you did, you'd lose your committee assignments. You'd get buried. The pork wouldn't flow through your way. Now guys are defining the leaders, both sides of the party, left and right. And this is where we are. Were the Whigs the last party not Republican or Democrat yeah. to be prominent, to have yeah. uh, uh, the ability to influence? Yeah, they were the sort of the, the opposition. History of the Whigs Jackson. is what? Uh, they took their name from the English Whig Party, and the Whigs were believed that more power should ride, reside with Parliament rather than with the king. So the Whigs arise during the era of Andrew Jackson. They thought he was acting like a monarch, thought he was too powerful. So they said, no, 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 power should be with the House and the Senate, the democratically elected legislature. And the Whigs are around for 20 years, around 1834 to 1854. Uh, they buckle under the pressure of slavery. And when they kind of collapse, many of their the northern Whigs eventually morphed and became the Republican Party. And that's kind of the history of the Republican Party. Exactly. I mean, it was born of the Whigs. A lot, a lot of, a lot of dissident. Probably two thirds of the original Republicans were former Whigs. Uh, there were some northern, northern Democrats who didn't like the fact that their party was too supportive of slavery, so they broke and became early Republicans as well. And Lincoln was a Whig right, before he former. became a Republican. He would have been one of the converts from right. being a Whig to becoming a Republican. Right. Abraham Lincoln loved Thomas Jefferson, but another one of his heroes was the Whig founder Henry Clay. And so Clay, again, was the leader, the founder of the Whig Party, runs for president three times, uh, loses every single time, kind of like the Buffalo Bills, if you will. <laughs> I'm not going not gonna to go there. But, you know, Lincoln gave a eulogy for Henry Clay, and it was very devastated when Clay died in 52. That's, that's kind of an interesting um, nugget of information that, that a lot of you don't know. The, 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 I mean, the really, the modern-day Republican Party was born 
uh, you know, in in the Whig Party. It really and truly was. Again, the large, large majority of its followers were former Whigs. Not not all of them, but the significant, the backbone. No, I, let's go here. We're rambling about, but I want to get your take on good this. Stuff. So somebody called this morning and said that, you know, Jefferson was a neoclassical liberal. Yeah. I mean, if, if you listen to, I mean, Jefferson and liberal today, you'd say, no, what? I mean, Jefferson <laughs> yeah. was not a liberal. But but explain neoclassical liberalism, if you will. We talked about Locke last week. Right, exactly. I mean, Locke, Locke would have been the quintessential neoclassical liberal, and Jefferson was heavily influenced by Locke. But but when did when, when did liberal become something different than yeah. what it was back in Jefferson's <laughs> right, day? The, the idea of a sort of a European, a, a Lockean liberal, right? Small, limited government, personal freedoms, individualism. Uh, once you kind of get to the 1930s and FDR and the New Deal, liberalism sort of gets reappropriated to kind of mean how did something that happen? Else. I've always wondered how that happened. How how we went from liberal being about you know liberties and freedoms, and, and the next thing you know, liberal means that guy loves government. He wants yeah. bigger government, more intrusive <laughs> well, government. Kind of, it, it's a bait and switch. Liberal in the 1920s then was a very okay. It's an acceptable word if you called yourself a liberal. Nobody was afraid. And no politician in public goes out today and purposely says, oh, I'm a liberal. Uh, nowadays, it's like, I'm a progressive. You know, But again, a liberal, it was a comforting term, and it sort of morphs and evolves. And FDR and the Democrats are sort of misappropriate the term. They kind of uh, change the meaning of it now to mean government intervention, big government. And for it's the complete antithesis, the complete opposite of what a Jeffersonian, a John Locke, neoclassical liberal stood for. Well explained. We'll take our first break yes, of this hour, Dr. Will Bolt. History Chair, Francis Marion University, is with us as we ramble about <laughs> on this Tuesday morning. Thank you. 843-661-0937. Dr. Will Bolt, History Chair, Francis Marion University, puts his career and tenureship <laughs> on the line every Tuesday morning when he barrels into the studio. And he's normally talking football, not a lot of a good half of football for the volunteers. Uh, rough, rough weekend yeah. for the Bolt household, the, the Vols, the Gamecocks, and the Bills on Sunday. I don't know if, if anybody uh, did anybody's team win this past weekend. Just, uh, one of those bad ones. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's a God in heaven though, because Clemson lost in double yeah, overtime. Uh, in misery loves company, I guess. <laughs> it was just the, the losses though. Tennessee twenty to seven halftime yeah. against your biggest rival. I mean, we had it. <laughs> I mean, we had it until you didn't. And then the Bills play awful three quarters, put it together in the fourth. And then give up a 75-yard drive at the end to a former Alabama quarterback, Mac Jones, who's <laughs> going to get kicked of out of the league at I, the end of the year. I and didn't it's think just, of that. And, yeah, uh, and you know, twisting the knife. And I never thought I'd say this: Bill Belichick fighting for his job. And I, mean, right, I, I never thought I'd say they, Bill Belichick. They couldn't do fighting. anything right. One in five, and they looked like the old Super Bowl teams against the Bills. <laughs> Let's um. Sorry. I, I want to ask you a question because sure I've always wondered this, and you may be the guy that could answer this. So the Constitution was the great compromise. I mean, it, I mean, a it, lot of, sure, wheeling and dealing, sure. cutting and dealing. For sure, guys did pick the hills they want to die on. The sausage being made. I mean, that That's would have been the, it, the earliest example in America of um, moderation and compromise. Were sure. there any anarchist or, or were, there, <laughs> were there any influences inside that room that were like just totally opposed to any sort of concessions or compromise or tempering their views? I think that's probably too strong of a word. There were a couple of guys. There were three guys at the end who refused to sign the Constitution. Who were they? Uh, let's see. Luther Martin uh, was one of them. Elbridge Jerry, 
and somebody will have to Google it. I got two out of three. Yeah, that, that's Wait, pretty impressive. Where, where's meat? Where's meatloaf? Right, so two out there of three were, bad. Yeah, <laughs> there were three in the room that 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 should have signed, but who would were, not. Their main objection was the the lack of a bill of rights, mm. and they said that again, if we don't have these bill of rights specifically outlined, what's to stop this new national government? from trampling over them. James Madison and the others said that, well, it's a government of limited powers. It can only act on the powers that it's given them. Plus, if we go down this road, if we start picking and choosing which specific rights we have, then by extension, anything that we maybe forget, you don't have. And so again, Madison's main point was it's a small government, very, very limited powers. You got nothing to worry about. This wasn't good enough for those. And lots of Americans when they talked about ratifying it, had the same objection. And most famously, Thomas Jefferson. And I've given you the story. Madison mails him the Constitution. Jefferson's in France. And he writes back and he says, this is great, James. Nicely done. Where's the rest? And Madison politely says, I, I gave you the whole thing, Tom. Put your glasses on. And then Jefferson says, oh, so there is there is this omission. You forgot to include the Bill of Rights. And that and Jefferson was not the only one no, that no, felt l- that way. You're lots, talking about the others who wouldn't A lot sign. of people at the, and then at the ratification conventions lots of states who when they ratified the state uh they included they said all right we're going to do this for now but we expect moving forward you're going to make amendments you're going to include these bill of rights in the and, upcoming years and, and, and give me the time the timeline of how the, and when that happened and who was very influential in adding the bill sure. of rights no it, it sort of starts mass massachusetts is with the first serious state where there's an, an actual fight between uh the anti-federalists and the federalists and everybody realized that if one state rejects it, this is really enough. It, you kind of, it's what you've got in, in the Republican caucus, right? Just a couple of guys can really gum up the whole things. But again, if one state, particularly a big state like Massachusetts, says no, you got to go back to, to ground zero. And so what the Federalists do to get it approved in Massachusetts to say, all right, once it's approved, we'll go back, we'll make some, uh, some, some we'll include these Bill of Rights in an amendment. And then the other thing they do is they know that Massachusetts politics was dominated by John Hancock. And Hancock controlled 20, 30 votes. And the Federalists said to Hancock, you know, we're hearing reports that Virginia might not ratify. And if Virginia doesn't ratify, George Washington can't be president. So the Federalists sort of dangle the presidency in front of Hancock's eyes. And John Hancock, he's a modest guy, right? He's nothing vain about this dude. And Hancock, of course, jumps at the bait, tells his guys, hey, man, I might be president. Let's let's sign this thing. Uh, the other big fight comes in Virginia. And the people of Virginia say, hey, wait a minute, this we need the Bill of Rights. And so James Madison makes a promise. And James Madison wrote the Constitution, was in Philadelphia, knew all about it. Madison says to the people, if we ratify it now, I promise I'll go to the Capitol. And the first thing I will do is include a Bill of Rights. And this was when when somebody said something, you, you knew they meant it. It was a serious promise, and Madison didn't break it. But, um, there, but there was a reason. I want you to elaborate. Were Massachusetts and Virginia the two most important states? Massa- Could that argument be made? Massachusetts, Virginia, and maybe New York okay. as well, right? Sort of the, the big three, a very, very big populist, e- populated states, economic powerhouses. And so, I mean, New York and Virginia kind of ratify at the end. Uh, nine states had already ratified. The Constitution went into effect. But everybody, it's a hollow victory. It, you don't, it doesn't matter if you don't have New York and Virginia. You need them. Did New York and Massachusetts look on Virginia like they did the rest of the southern states? 
Yeah, Virginia was sort of the the lead. Again, Virginia was the big, big state. So many important individuals had come from there, of course. Washington. As Virginia went, the South followed. Is that fair? That's a good way to put it, yes. I mean, Virginia, as Virginia went, the the rest of the country in many ways following. And this was sort of ground zero. Most people consider Virginia to be the, the bellwether. And lots of other states were sort of mimicking, stealing, repeating what Virginia was doing at the state level. And so, yes, Virginia was a very, very critical important state at the time. And how consequential is Jefferson in the early days of Virginia? Jefferson serves as governor for a while. He's in the Virginia legislature, writes the Virginia Code, Religious Code of Freedom, which he was very, very proud of. But again, during all of the, the main constitution writing in the 1780s, he's, in France. he's away from the, again, it's the, the ultimate irony. And we have this great constitutional republic, but our A guy, our starting quarterback, you know, our Tom Brady, our Peyton Manning, is away from the country when we need it the most. It tells you a lot about the United States that the second string, the third string guys, uh, we're able to do do our. We got a pretty deep bench. But 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 how much more complicated would it have <laughs> yes. been to pass a constitution? The, what a, had Jefferson not been? What in? a great what if have Jefferson had had been? And Jefferson could kind of dig his heels in. Uh, Jefferson was rather <laughs> rather stubborn, stubborn and doctrinaire. Uh, but again, Jefferson was a very very quiet guy. You know, he was more the the nuts and bolts, sort of the writing like behind the really scenes. Like most really smart people are. That's a good. That's a good yeah. way to. John Adams, the other great constitutional philosopher, again, he thought the ideal form of conversation was an argument. He liked to get up in your face. So, if those two guys had been there, and heaven help us, if they had a disagreement, uh, it really could have slowed things down. Yeah, we'd still <laughs> we'd still be debating. We'd be trying to get a speaker to Constitution <laughs> all to, at the same time today. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Sure really? Williams in Orangeburg, listening to WTQS. Good morning. You're on. Good morning, Professor. Thank you, morning, sir. Good to hear want, from you. Hey, um, I want to know those guys. Okay, the House. Um, seven out of nine people voted against certified yeah. election. Should they be qualified? To be the House Speaker? Well, I don't think that disqualifies me. I don't think it's a good look. Uh, I think there are several Republicans from New York in Biden districts who've hinted at or implied that they cannot vote for uh, somebody who voted to, to decertify, for somebody who didn't accept Biden as a president. This was one of the problems which hindered Jim Jordan. Uh, there were just enough guys who said, this is a bridge too far. And so, right, the media, it, it is one of the headlines that's the large majority of these individuals. Uh, voted or had objections, but two thirds of the Republican caucus, you know, over 140 members. So there's there's not that many that that didn't. One of them is the the majority whip from Minnesota, and President Trump over the weekend was sort of you know, saying maybe maybe we ought to find somebody else other than this guy. So it's gonna you're gonna have a whole series of votes behind closed doors today. And as I understand it, who, whoever comes in last then gets it's it's like Survivor, right? You're sure. voted off, and then eventually, <laughs> right, you're gonna have somebody. And the rules state that everybody is then, when you go to the floor, is supposed to support this individual. But again, it only takes four guys, four House Republicans, to say no, and we're right back to where we started. Thank you, Williams. And if you think, but you got something else to add, Williams? Yeah, I want to talk about the 14th Amendment in Colorado. Do you think that works? I'm not, I'm not sure well, what, what you mean and what's that contact. You, you tried, but are you disparring, preventing individuals yeah, from running? Yeah. And qualified Trump from running for president. Yeah, I think it's Thank r- you, Williams. Right, a, lot, a lot of people 
opposed to Trump want to go down that road? Again, I would imagine it's going to wind up in the lap of the Supreme Court. I don't think John Roberts is in a big hurry uh, to want that. He's probably going to try and find a way to punt on that. Uh, I think it opens up a can of worms if somebody in Colorado says, hey, we're going to exclude this guy from the ballot. Then what's to stop somebody, maybe if there's a Republican in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, from saying, uh-uh, we're not going to put Biden. As my grandfather famously and eloquently said, you do that, you'll have more hell on your hands yeah. than you could ever, ever imagine. <laughs> Take a break. Back in a few moments. I'll tell you, the problem with Rev, I've tailgated with Rev. Rev ain't real good at drinking a beer. He likes, oh, whatever, <laughs> six or eight or 10 or 12 <laughs> or 14 or mm. 20 or 22 or 24. Mm-hmm. Then he starts cussing, <laughs> acting That's right. crazy. That's right. I'm there as normal trying to restore order and bring sanity back to the to the occasion. I, I just go over and peruse your bourbon selection yeah, to see mine. what you brought. Not mine. Somebody leaves that there. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. I see. Let's go to the phone. I'm Jam- mad to get me in <laughs> okay. trouble. All right. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, Jamie in Darlington. Good morning. Morning, fellas. Morning, sir. Uh, Dr. Bold, I'm wondering if you and Ken have seen, and Rev, if y'all seen the um, Ken Burns um, um, program on the American bison, the buffalo. Um, if you have not, you talk about some history. And um, I had no idea what a near calamity it was for the American buffalo and, and the um, Native Americans. That that was an eye opener, and uh, I'm wondering if you have seen it, and if you would watch it, and maybe comment on the next time you're yeah. on. I've, I've I usually watch most of the Ken Burns ones. I haven't seen this one yet. Uh, I do sort of maybe just a, a bird's eye view of just the the terrible things that happened uh, to the to the bison, just people taking pot shots from trains, uh, guys just running around on just killing them for sport. And so, well, no, thank you. I, I had heard about, it, and I'll make sure I put it on. Uh, my radar, uh, and so with the football season kind of going down south, we're all, I think we're going to have some free <laughs> What do you mean going south? Wait, what is Tennessee's record? I mean, uh, yeah, but you've lost your two big rivals, Florida and Georgia, and or Florida and Alabama. You've got Georgia coming up, and Georgia is is banged up. Maybe that's you can kind of salvage. Hey, what, what do you do? You're playing for the, the Music City Bowl in hey, Nashville. He, he did win your Super Bowl. He, sound, he, sounds, we, he sounds like a Gamecock now playing for the Music City Bowl. Yeah, I mean, it's just, What's wrong with playing for the Music City Bowl, Bolt? You got a problem with every season going into? We have higher expectations. You know, we, okay. we expect to be in the New Year's Six, you know, playing at the at the very, very end. So you, can't, you can't spell citrus without uh, a is what is what I've always heard, right? Way to, way to stick the knife in again and just, just twist it. Okay. Okay, let's go here for a second before we got to get out of here. So, so Williams is asking if someone should be, and you know, Williams is going to ask this because he sees the world differently than I do, but he's asking about the likelihood should someone who did not certify the outcome of the 2020 presidential election be allowed to serve as speaker. It's going to be harder to find someone who did certify (laughs) the election uh, to be able to get the votes to win the speakership. Again, it's, it's uncharted waters. And I think a lot of the Democrats are, do we really want to set this precedent? You know, do we really want to go down this road? Because if we do that, who's to say, right, the roles might be reversed somewhere down the road. So I'm, I'm hoping that discretion is the better part of valor. With Trump and the ballot stuff, that just takes a rather creative secretary of state, possibly to keep him off of the ballot. Then you're going to need some, some Have we ever challenges. done that before? Not Have to- we ever not allowed 
a nominee of a major political party to at least compete no. right. to win that right. state. It's, it's, it's a gentleman's agreement, right? All right. So you're, you're the nominee of the party. I may not like you. You may belong to their party. But, hey, you, the voters the voters are going to make that decision. Not one guy, not a secretary of state. So, I, again, I, it's a can of worms. I hope they don't open. If they do, they they better have all their ducks in a row. They better be darn, darn sure. There better be some smoking gun, some piece of evidence that hasn't well, I mean, come out I, yet. I, I don't know that. I don't know what would be legitimate enough to disqualify someone who has won the nomination right. of his party. Yeah. In other words, let's just for argument's sake, I mean, the Democrat Party is a little bit larger than the, the GOP, but right half the nation decide that this is the guy we go. want to run right. against in, your in, guy. In 50 states, right, where he's probably going to win almost all of these these conventions, probably by double digits by going away. That's a threat to democracy. Right? But what do you make of his sustaining? I mean, I mean, a lot of people thought that once the new war on, right. and it would become, away. Yeah, I mean, the shine goes away. And that was a lot of fun. You know, I'm glad we did that. But let's get back to business as usual. It seems to me that the GOP rank and file voter have no interest at all in getting back to business as usual. What do you make of that? Well, I think the guys... uh in the Republican caucus, caucus, we very, very happy. Most of them, if if he went away, uh, the Republican voters, though, absolutely not. And this is the guy who uh, has his finger on the pulse, knows these kitchen table issues, talks to the forgotten man, the common man, the industrial worker who's worked his whole life and realizes he doesn't have much, can't leave much for his kids, can't provide for college education, his wages haven't kept up with inflation and health care. And so, and, and none of the, the Republicans prior to Trump and the Democrats didn't care about him, just turned a blind eye, and Trump is the guy who's been talking about them, says, hey, I got your back. And so, yes, they're going to follow this guy to the gates of hell, and he, certainly more power to him. Well, I, I agree. And I'll say this to William's point. I mean, if there were a state to, to figure out a way to keep him off the ballot, January 6th would be, uh, mm -hmm. wow. I mean, it, that, that would have been baby you know what, as Jackie Gleason and <laughs> Chef Buperty Justice said, I mean, I, I can't imagine what energy and and, yeah. and, and and vitriol that would generate within How, the GOP if, base. If, if they did it, think of the, the write-in candidate. I mean, the, the poor who got a count of even millions of write-in votes. I mean, that would almost, that would probably be better for him politically. So, no, we're going to keep you off the ballot in these states. And so the people would come out probably in droves. Maybe a lot of people who weren't Trump voters say, hey, no, this is this is bad. But so this is a bridge he, too Dr. far. Bolt, doesn't he benefit from that anyway? No, I, I mean, I, doesn't it appear that the persecution of Trump right. makes Trump a The, the a, more a indictments, candidate? the better. It seems to be right. The Democrats think that this is gonna this is gonna be the nail in the coffin. But no, man, his poll numbers keep keep going up. They just they can't kill the guy no matter what no matter what they do. We've set up a voice like the guy in a, in a scary movie. You know, it's Halloween time. He just, he just You put the stake through the heart and he comes back for a sequel. So. Well, I mean, it's almost like the people trying to destroy his campaign and candidacy are the ones that keep him alive. They keep him alive. They just right, they, need a, they need a different tack. Right. Just maybe just let him go at this stage. Yeah. But he's, he ain't going anywhere. Yeah. And, and I would ask Williams the same question about a Democrat potentially being a speaker. Anyone who voted not to certify in 2016 would that same thing apply. Because well. yeah, right, there exactly. was a good bit of Democrats who mm -hmm. didn't who vote to certify in 16, but... Turnaround is not fair play no. in the world of <laughs> it's Trump. In the course. world of politics, hypocrisy. Trump yeah. is the exception 
uh, to the rules. Thank you, Dr. Bolt. <laughs> hey, have a good week, guys. We'll, Thank we you will, much. And, and Tennessee plays Georgia this week? No, no. That's, I've got several more weeks to prepare for that beatdown. So. But they still got Georgia on the schedule. Absolutely. It, but it's in Knoxville. Okay. So, Bills okay. are on Thursday night, so yeah, who knows? Good Might deal. be a rough good Friday. Deal. Take a break. Back, <laughs> Thanks, in a few, back in a few moments. 843-661-0937, our number. I'm going to ask Josh to get us in queue in just a couple of minutes. I want you to hear something from Ron DeSantis. Before we do that, somebody call during the break. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD, good morning. Hey, good morning. Uh, man, Billy Joel, uh, who was the uptown girl? If you guys remember that back in the day. Uh, Christy Brinkley, Brinkley, how about yeah. that? Uh, yeah. Glory days, Ken. Ken, you would have to bring up uh, Reagan. Uh, good topic, man. That is such a good topic because if you go back to that day, you guys are old enough. You remember Iran hostages and Soviets were in Afghanistan. Uh, you watch that Charlie Wilson's war. Uh, and look at the map of Europe back when Reagan came in. You had a West Germany, East Germany. Ukraine and Russia were all part of the USSR. So when you start talking about what Reagan spent, ah, we might have got a pretty decent uh, return on investment off of that. We got some freedom there. Within uh, the Ber Berlin Wall came down. That was in uh, Bush's administration. But here's some good questions for you from back in the day. What was the price of a home? Let's let's go back to like 1985. What was the price of tuition? Uh, that one will get you. Uh, what was your mortgage rates? Went much higher than today. What were insurance rates? Um, I mean, how many credit card companies did you have out there? Uh, what was China's GDP back in the day? So you can see where things have changed around. And I, I, I always think, here's another one for you. How many attorneys were there back in 1985? Compare that to today. Uh, and what was the salary of a senator? There's all kind of things we can get into on that. But what it does, it shows you where the money is going to uh, here today in 2023. So y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. I mean, it, when, when you look at this historically, I mean, I think the major events are, are fair game. I mean, th there's no doubt about it. I mean, the market crashing in 1929, what should the government done or not done? Bernanke considered himself uh, to have learned a lot from the uh, what he read and studied at an economist and a Fed uh, you know, treasury, uh, Fed chair. Um, but, and we can debate that. I mean, we, we, was the Smoot-Hawley tariff act, was, was that good? Um, was that bad? Um, tax increases, tax cuts, was that good or bad? The new deal, was it necessary or not? I mean, th these are very important debates. In 1942, defense spending tripled, nearly quadrupled. Um, but in 1945, the war ended. And America was left standing. I mean, I think there are very historically contextual debates to be had about whether we should have yanged or yanged. But the two dates that when I look back at our debt, and Charles is right, deficit and debt are two different things. We're running a $1.75 trillion deficit that will add to our federal debt. I mean, that's the best way I can explain it. And the, I mean, the debt tab has been running for a long time, and it really increased from 42 to 45. We know why, because we funded a war. We paid a lot of that back. I mean, in all, in all honesty, we paid a lot of that back. And then you've got um, the New Deal, 
and you've got the war on poverty, and you've got Reagan's tax cuts and his increased military spending. Those are the job of Washington. But it is the job of Washington. If LBJ becomes president, didn't get elected, but if he becomes president, it's his job to set forth an agenda, right? I mean, that's what we yeah. elect presidents to do. What is your vision for America? What do you wish to carry America? And at times, people like me and you are at odds with where the country is is positioned to go. Um, Obama scared me to death. I mean, it's the only guy that I can ever remember thinking to myself, like, like, wow, I mean, this guy really looks at the world and our nation's, you know, responsibility and role in the world fundamentally different than I do. But I, I always thought he had socialist, communist tendencies. Um, I mean, now I think, you know, when I look back and, I mean, I can be more critical of some of his other, but but I, I just, you know, he's not a centrist. There's no way he's a centrist. He's running in support of same-sex marriage. But Saul Alinsky was one of his mentors and one of the people he looked up to and 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 tried to emulate in some weird way. I mean, I, but, but all of that is fair game. At times, I got to believe if you were a, a liberal American, somewhat of a pacifist, you probably went crazy when Reagan was the president. I mean, I, you know, I, I, Americans have a lot of different positions and, and dispositions. And at times, the guy in charge is trying to drive the country to a certain place that he sincerely believes or may not sincerely believe. It may be, you know, um, instorted or more manipulated by some of the ancillary forces, lobbying and consulting and you know, uh, favors he owes to donor class. Uh, I, I don't know what motivates somebody to drive or try to drive a nation in a particular direction or, or other. Um, I think when Reagan reduced taxes and, and, and deregulated, I think he believes sincerely this is best for the nation. I think when Reagan asked Congress to invest more heavily in the military-industrial complex, I think he really believed that the Soviet Union we're trying to supplant America as our, you know, as the preeminent superpower. They didn't want two superpowers. They wanted one. There's fair debate to be had about that. Uh, I know where I stand. Uh, you know, somebody like Jeff would stand in a very different place. Williams would stand in a different place. And that's why we have these vigorous debates and intense dialogue about where the country goes or not. Do we fund in Israel? Do we get involved in Ukraine I'm, I'm, I've never said that I'm sure my view of Ukraine is right. I've never said that I'm sure, as I'm sitting behind this microphone, that everything I say about Israel and our involvement or not is the right moves to make. I mean, I think everything is subjective. We're human beings. Uh, we're affected by things. We believe in certain things. We're influenced by certain things. But when I look back at our debt, and I look at 1973 and 2008. I don't know how you defend that. I mean, I don't know how in 73, Nixon ending the gold standard can be defended. I think Davis talking about what did things cost then? What do they cost now? In 2008, quantitative easing became the norm. And when you look at Nixon ending the gold standard and Obama and, well, I mean, Bush introducing quantitative easing, I mean, it led to a, you took a pay cut. I mean, your dollar became worth less after Nixon ended the gold standard. Your dollar's declining value became exacerbated as a result 
of Bush and Obama agreeing to allow the Fed to basically control the economy by infusing capital in the name of buying mortgage-backed securities and government debt, government bonds and T-bills and whatnot. And I don't know how you debate that. I don't know how anybody could say, well, that made sense in the moment. I mean, I, I guess I can understand deficit spending in a moment of crisis. But, but we've normalized deficit spending. We know there's no way under current construct to balance our budget. We don't need a calamity. We don't need a crisis. I mean, we know that, that everything is going to be out of balance and we're going to be deficit spending if everything runs on time. I mean, if all the trains run on time in Washington and we collect the, the appropriate amount of revenue that taxes say we'll collect, we're still a trillion dollars underwater. Every single year. And when we deficit spend, we increase inflation, and you take a pay cut. So for those that say, well, I mean, I understand, you know, deficit spending, and I understand the federal debt, but it really doesn't bother me. It does bother you. It has tremendous impact on you. The paycheck you get every week or two or month is worth less because the government has decided to once again, in 73, take the, um, I mean, once you take the money connected to a, a tangible asset, gold, in this case, that there, there's a, there's, there are limitations with how much you can manipulate the economy. And I'm talking about monetary policy. When you basically say, okay, we don't have to have the gold to print the money, it becomes fiat currency. It becomes paper. What's it worth? I don't know. I mean, when, it, when it's connected to a hard asset, we know what it's worth. I mean, there, there's a tangible value to that gold. There's a tangible value to that dollar. And we've seen an enormous decline in the value of the dollar. And I think we're headed to really, really, um, I mean, I, you know, I've got friends of mine who know more about this than I do. And they believe, and I kind of agree with this, they believe that the next 25 years, if we don't address our debt, if we don't address deficit spending, that the dollar you have in your pocket will be worth roughly half what it's worth today. Josh, I, I, I don't have any idea what Josh makes, but if Josh makes, you know, $100,000 a year, he'll live a lifestyle of someone making $50,000 a year. And and I, I just think that's where we are. So, so when I read... Uh, the, the, the aggregate debt, and I read, you know, um, Reagan tax cuts, increased defense spending, uh, Watergate, Vietnam War ended, stagflation, JFK budgets, Bay of Pigs, recession, um, you know, war on terror, 9-11 attacks, Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, uh, First Iraq War, SNL crisis. I mean, I understand all of those. I mean, they're all contributors to the American experiment and, and, and how we got where we are. But I think the two biggest contributors – to our financial disarray is Nixon in 73 deciding that fiat currency is okay. And Bush and Obama in 08 both agreed that quantitative easing is going to be normalized. And the Fed became far more powerful than the president. I mean, the Fed came, became far more powerful than Congress. How do I know that? Because Congress can appropriate money they don't have if there's not a buyer. And when Congress appropriates a trillion dollars every year that they don't have, 
they're doing it knowing full well that the Fed stands ready to buy. Ready to buy. And and that is not in any of our best interests. And I don't know. I mean, I understand you could argue the um the term of Clinton as president, the pros and cons, the term of Reagan as president, the term of George W. Bush, Obama as president. But but quantitative easing just made it all about the debt, as far as I'm concerned. And and here we are, you know, thirty-two-ish, three-ish trillion dollars in debt. And I mean, it's kind of, let's go back to 2000. Okay. In 2008, when quantitative easing began, we were $10.82 trillion in debt in the last 15 years. Since the era or age of quantitative easing, we've gone from less than $11 trillion in debt to better than $32 trillion in debt. One trillion dollars not 22 trillion and i'm talking about the increase from 08 to now one trillion seconds is thirty-two thousand years ago i mean imagine what we've done and and i just don't know how you debate that i don't know any logical reasonable person who's not a modern monetary theorist and said none of this matters anyway i don't know how you you, you just watch that happen without being so concerned about what lies ahead. Take a break. Back in a few. But say I get unfairly labeled a contrarian, cynical, um, you know, soul who finds bad in everything. I, I disagree with that. I think I find some truthfulness in some of these arguments. I mean, I don't know how, and, and this is not a Republican or Democrat issue. I don't know how, Rev. And you, you see all these highlights I've got. I mean, I think there's an absolute fair debate to be what. What should we have done after the market crash in 1929? I mean, as, as a limited government conservative, I think the less government does, the better. But I certainly understand the legitimacy of the debate. Um, defense spending in 1942. I mean, I, I think even the most limited government conservative will accept that we had to increase our defense spending in 1942. And then you go to Reagan, and and you look at what Reagan did during the Cold War. Now, Reagan, uh, liberals will say, or Democrats would argue, yeah, but he cut taxes too. I mean, he can't cut taxes and increase defense spending without generating these huge deficits. I think there are legitimate debates to be had about those issues. The ending of the gold standard and the allowance of fiat currency and then quantitative easing, to me, are less ideological and more just nonsense. I mean, it's nonsense to believe that there's not some secret math in the Republican caucus and secret math in the Democrat caucus. Two plus two equals four. And we're spending right now, we're at about $1.75 trillion as a deficit this year. I mean, that's staggering. And and I just, I hope the two parties can at least agree on that, that we can't continue spending North of a trillion dollars every single year that we don't have, or we're going to leave Josh and his generation a lesser country than we found. And and that's the point I'm trying to make. It's not trying to be a partisan. I mean, obviously, I have a worldview. I respect those who have different worldviews. But what worldview believes it's okay to spend $1.7 trillion every year that you don't have? Or in Trump's case, you know, a trillion. Uh, in, in, in Bush's case, 
$800 billion. In Obama's case, $750, $800 billion. And that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. When we, when we make the accusation of it's not really a duopoly, but rather a uniparty, the one thing the uniparty has agreed on is spending money that it doesn't have. And I think the allowing of that and the way the Fed has become so ingrained in our political decisions, because I'm telling you, you want to make Congress work? Let Jerome Powell say, we're not buying any more debt. We're not buying any more debt. Whatever bonds and mortgage-backed securities that are bought will be bought on the free market. We're not going to be the purchaser of last resort. Congress has to budget. Congress has to meet in these appropriating committees and do the diligent work that the American people expect them to do, both Republican and Democrat. And you argue over defense spending. You argue over entitlements. You argue over infrastructure and education. That's when politics it's at its best, and you can't have an omnibus at a continuing resolution and just say, put it on the tab. The Fed will buy it. I mean, that's crazy for us to believe that we can continue down down that road. Um, we got a call? Let's we go do. to our call, then we'll go to our guest. Bob in Florence. Hello, Bob. You're on. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, in, in case this has already been covered, uh, tell me to put the brakes on, but uh, I'm old enough to remember, and I think it was, maybe 1966, LBJ made a speech. It could have been the State of the Union speech. It might have been what they called his guns and butter speech. But he announced that in the coming tax year, there would be a 10% surcharge on everybody. And I'm thinking just a week ago, watching Biden come before us and say, we want this money for, you know, people in Ukraine, and we want money for for Israel, and irrespective of whether or not those are good things to spend money on, guy didn't have the uh, the guts to tell the American people, oh yeah, and we're going to charge you ten percent more. What do you think of that? Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. Um, I remember that. I mean, I've not I've not read the transcript of the speech, but um, but back to the uh, to, to to the war on poverty. Was LBJ sincere? I mean, I think he was very sincere in some of the civil rights legislation. Now, was he trying to gain favor? Of course he was. Um, We spent a lot of money in a war on poverty, and a higher percentage of Americans are living in poverty. I mean, that's kind of oxymoronic, but it is is what it is. I want want to make sure we give our guest um, the due time he deserves because he works on behalf. So, so, So we agree. Nah, I don't know if we do or not. I hope we agree that quantitative easing has been bad. It has allowed governments to spend money it doesn't have without being held responsible at some point in time. The one thing that I think is fair game is defense spending. You know, that's a line item in our budget. It's a big line item. It's an important line item. And I'd love to see us vigorously debate how much money it requires to fund the American military. What role does quantitative easing have in keeping interest rates low? Well, Are I mean, they related? That was the double whammy. Well, I mean, yes. Uh, when quanti- well, I mean, in all honesty, that's probably the great mistake because when you, when you macro stimulate the economy by stimulus, and by that I mean quantitative easing, when you inject, when you, when you increase the M2 money supply like the government did or the Fed, it's not that I mean, the, the Fed did it. The government can't print money. The Fed can. So when the Fed buys that debt, it adds more liquidity to an economy that distorts supply and demand. 
Plus, and that was exacerbated by keeping interest rates as cheap as they were. And, and now you, but the housing market will be, I'm telling you, we're, we're about to find out some hard, hard lessons on economic realities. Um, borrowing money, uh, newsflash, you ready, Pamplico? Borrowing money at 4% is half the price of borrowing money at 8%. And you're about to see a tremendous reset in some of these, um, in some of these hard assets. Barry Wingard is here. And Barry's not here to argue about defense spending. I think he could shed some light on defense spending. But he's rather here to, I guess, brag or talk a little bit about some of the acclaim that our Veterans Park has gotten. We'll get to Veterans Day sooner than later, Barry. But, um, but I am unbelievably proud of what your group has done in support of the Veterans Park. And you're starting to get some recognition. Thank you. Uh I uh, appreciate being here today. I, I didn't do well in Econ 101, so we'll talk about something else. Uh, <laughs> I, did, I do want to give kind of a recap just of the last year, Ken, of, uh, of what's been happening at, at Florence, city of Florence Veterans Park. Uh, it's been a kind of a banner year, in my opinion. And I'm going back to last uh, Marine Corps birthday, November 10th of 2022, uh, we were given two seedlings from the uh, World War II battlefield, or World War I battlefield, uh, Bella Wood. Uh, these acorns were uh, gathered, and, and NC State actually uh, create, brought them to the seedling stage. And we have two of them parked, on, planted on either side of our World War I monument. Um it's it's it was done by the uh, Charlie Caldwell from the Marine Corps League kind of got it started, but we're University of South Carolina ROTC. There are two at Quantico, NC State has one, and there's one at uh, Reynolds Coliseum in Raleigh. So and there may be some others now. I think Patriots Point may have gotten one. Uh, the other thing that happened the next day on November 11th, we dedicated. World War II monument, it, and it is spectacular. It is just amazing. Uh, it was a joint venture with Brown Memorial and Alex Palkovich. And speaking of that, you know, Alex lives in Israel now in Haifa. He's supposed to be here for this year's Veterans Day, so I hope he can get out. Uh, but uh, another tie-in to him, he, he, was, he grew up in Ukraine, so uh, he's kind of in both places at once now with uh, friends and family. Uh, the other things uh, are uh, on a national scale. <clears throat> there's an organization, Blue Star Museums. Blue Star families are those that have people serving in the military, and uh, they started a thing to highlight museums across the country. And if you Google uh, Blue Star Museums and you go to South Carolina, you'll find museums in the state that uh, they recommend and support. We are on there as a park, which was uh, kind of unique, I think, at least in South Carolina, to be a park and be part of their uh, national program. Also, Gold Star Families, uh, the Woody Williams Museum. Woody Williams was the last uh, Medal of Honor recipient living from World War II, passed away last summer. Actually, he was supposed to be at our park on last Veterans Day, but he passed away. Uh, but they also include us on their national website. Uh, and this year, uh, again, we did a 9-11 ceremony. Uh, we did a big one on the 10th anniversary and the 20th anniversary, and we've 
had a lot of uh, interest in doing it every year. Of course, we'll have a really big one on the 25th anniversary coming up in 2026. Um, along that line, uh, there's a survivor tree, the, the national 9-11 people. And uh, the background is they found a tree still alive right there at Ground Zero like a month after uh, 9-11. And they nurtured that tree and kept it alive. And now they have, again, uh, produced seedlings from that tree. Uh, we have been awarded one. And we're going to plant it maybe on Arbor Day or maybe just plant it and put a sign up or something. But uh, the, uh, the other recipients, I give three a year. The other recipients are places like Paris, France, um, New York City, of course. Uh, West Point. Um, I think they want this one in. Uh, they give them following a tragedy in a community, um, and uh, I tried to get on their list uh, after our police officers were killed and the others were wounded, and uh, they kind of went into uh, hibernation during COVID and didn't didn't pursue this. So I sent the same letter with different dates on it and talked about it, and so I think uh, I think that's what convinced them. So uh, we're going to plant that tree at some point. Um, so uh, the big thing, I guess, uh, that happened is the Veterans Administration uh, selects parks or Veterans Day ceremonies, really, more than, than the location, but just what do you do on Veterans Day? And, of course, there are thousands across the country. There are parades, uh, ceremonies like we have, smaller ceremonies, bigger ceremonies, maybe, in, of course, in Arlington. Uh, Columbia has a huge parade. Uh, this year, they named 66 places throughout the United States, and uh, two of them are in South Carolina, North Charleston and Florence. So we, uh, we are tickled to death to be recognized them. Also... Uh, and one other thing is that uh, SCETV has contacted us about doing a, a, a program about our park, and uh, that's kind of in the works. I, I've suggested that they be here on Veterans Day so we'll have a big crowd um, that they can, you know, videotape rather than just walking around looking at monuments. Um, and that brings me to Veterans Day, which, of course, will be it's on a Saturday this year, November 11th. I don't know how that will affect uh, attendance. It could increase because people can bring their children and grandchildren, or it may decrease because people are going to football games, going to see the, maybe. <laughs> maybe there's less interest in South Carolina this year. I think year. we'll still be playing by uh, then. I hope we are. But I wanted to uh, uh, just touch on that. Uh, Brigadier General David Jenkins, who is the Assistant Adjutant General of South Carolina National Guard, will be the speaker. He he works in Lexington, Kentucky. He's a uh, tech guy uh so he's a traditional guardsman meaning not full-time uh so he will be here as our speaker and and uh we're going to have a military band this year the 246 army band is going to perform uh we've never we've had live music we've never had a live military band there and i think people will will really enjoy that so uh please come out on november 11th the band will start before 11 o'clock playing some patriotic music and then be part of the ceremony too so uh come on out and we look forward to seeing you 
And we're going to get you back in one more time yeah, to remind people about, about you're yeah. here to brag on the park and all that is very impressive. And you guys have really worked hard. And I, and I would encourage people, I mean, if you got a few moments in your, in your daily routine, go out behind the, the, the city center. And I mean, it's, it's quite impressive. I mean, there's a lot of work that has been done there in commemorating and honoring the different branches of service. In fact, the, the locals who have been involved, I mean, it's, 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 a, yes. it's an inspiring and touching uh, place it really and truly is. It's, 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 there's a lot of people that help us. Yeah, well, I mean, no, I, I get no it. I mean, you, you, you're kind Including of hurting. you. Well, I, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm embarrassed how little I do help, to be honest with you. Um, anyway, thank you. Appreciate you. Good seeing thank Barry you, Wingard. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Heavy on the former, light on the lieutenant governor. How about that? <laughs> Heavy on the former, light on uh, the office. <laughs> and and sh- speaking of Lieutenant Governor, should we announce that uh, scheduled to appear this week on you the can. show? You can. You drum. Okay. You and Josh did good work. Yeah. Get that done. Yeah, Josh, you want to say? Uh, yes, we have the current Lieutenant Governor coming on the show this Friday. Her name is Pamela, I think it's Yvette. You're right. Yeah. Pamela Yvette will be on with us at 9, right, Josh? 9.30. 9.30, okay. Or so 9, yeah, sorry. Nine, you're right. 9 o'clock hour, right, right right after the delegation hour. The delegation and then the <laughs> lieutenant governor. There that's, you go. That's um, right. And check out John Fetterman's tweet. Oh, it's yeah. very inspiring and constructive oh. and intellectually stimulating. Yeah, I mean, we can't repeat it on the air, but but J.D. Vance had talked about keeping the, the funding bills separate for Israel and Ukraine, and Senator the distinguished senator from Pennsylvania, Fetterman, had something to say about that. It wasn't very distinguished. Yeah, you're right. Um, just <laughs> check, read check it, it out yourself. Check it out on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Let's go to the phone. Can't repeat it. Um, Mike in Darlington. Hey, Mike, you're on. Hey, uh, I just uh, reiterating what the, uh, your previous guest had to say. That, that I, can't, uh, I, I can't express the debt of gratitude we owe to our enlisted servicemen and women and our junior officers because uh, none of this would be taking place if it wasn't for them. And uh, I just, uh, I appreciate that. And I I think we ought to recognize those uh, surviving veterans that uh, uh, many of them paid a huge price for the freedoms we so frivolously take for granted. And that that's pretty much it. But I, uh, what I originally wanted to call for was uh, that uh, it's I, I think uh, the math and basic economics education of our people is just so darn low. The bar is so darn low. They don't realize what's happening. And whether it's a 10 percent surcharge or up in the corporate tax Inflation taxes everybody, and there is no repeal from that. And uh, I, I, I think uh, just a little bit of arithmetic and maybe knowledge of the rule of seventy-two, and uh, would give them some idea of what kind of financial collapse we could be working with in the next uh, decade or so. I don't think it'll take twenty-five years to cut the dollar in half. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. And, and I'll say this. Um, everybody has a number. I mean, Rev's got a number. I've got a number. You become more um, concerned about that number, and you concentrate on that number. I'm going back to – I told Rev this morning. I mean, it's interesting Mike would say that. Rev and I were talking about some other things this morning off the air before 
the show started and I told him one of the one of the one of my mentors, I mean one of the the brightest and most savvy men in my life told me that because of our financial um, lack of discipline, because we have, you know, just 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 deflated the dollar. Inflation has caused your dollar to be worth less and less and less. I mean, he told me 10 years ago, he said, work and earn a paycheck. Work and earn a paycheck. Stay healthy. Stay alert. I mean, stay in good shape. And by that, I mean, don't let the old man in. What is that Toby Keith song today? Don't let the old man in. Stay busy. Stay active. Exercise. Keep your mind sharp. Keep working. Keep earning a paycheck. Those that believe, and I, and I sincerely I think this, Reb, those that believe they've got enough to go home, to fish and hunt and play golf and go to ball games, I think you're going to find that that is going to be just unbelievably challenged as we move forward. Uh, the generation, I mean, my generation, I mean, you know, is it a million, two million, three million, four million, five million, a half million? I don't know. I mean, everybody's got a number, X number of dollars a month and passive income. Social Security does this. Medicare does that. I just think the dollars that you are depending on are going to be so much less. I mean, worth so much less. And the cost of living is going to be so much more expensive that you probably just need to consider working and earning a paycheck. And I think part of working and earning a paycheck is go to a gym read books, stay cognitively alert, mentally and physically um, in shape. And I think you're able to get up and go to work and be productive and earn a paycheck and not have to worry about. I mean, you'll never escape inflation, but you won't be held hostage by, you know, I had this amount of money at this age and I thought I could draw this much from it. But but the, the money is going to be significantly um, worth less than it was had we not taken off the gold standard and had we not quantitative eased i mean that was our you know uh it was to get out of a jam and we've normalized it let's go to the phone william and mccall good morning you're on how y'all doing dave ken i'd like to thank the veterans my wife just had a retirement dinner uh saturday 27 years she was a frontline medic and uh we need more young people to step up and do what our older veterans are doing that's retiring. Well, explain. Thank you. Appreciate that and appreciate your wife uh, for serving for as long as uh, as she did. You know, I guess if you want to give the most draconian example, I mean, if you want to go to the extreme, there may be a time when some of these publicly funded pensions and retirement plans go away. I mean, you know, we've seen a lot of that happen to the private sector, but I don't think anybody's ever thought that if I work for the government and the government promises me this much money at this age, I mean, I put money up and they matched it and you know what I mean? And that there's kind of a formula that on the other end of my work life is a paycheck and the paycheck is going to be X number of dollars. Well, I mean, they're unfunded liabilities. The money's not there. I mean, a lot of this is kind of hocus pocus. Ponzi scheme like a little bit like uh, Social Security, and and I, I just think there's going to be one day. I mean, th- there's a bottom to the rabbit hole. I mean, th- there's a place that Towns Van Zandt and Blaze Foley reside, <laughs> and you can't go any further down uh, than that. And I'm talking about the songwriter rabbit hole. I always thought Bob Dylan and John Prine and Bruce Springsteen were kind of near the bottom until I bumped into Blaze Foley and Towns Van Zandt, and I realized they're they're about as mainstream as. <laughs> 
<laughs> as, as the news is compared to those guys. Well, I mean, there, there's some extreme, I guess, algorithm out there, you know, that somebody has run and says, hey, this could happen. I mean, this is most likely to happen. This is least likely to happen, but this could happen. I mean, this is an extreme example of us not financially disciplining ourselves at any point in time. And I think some of the public sector retirement plans, so some of the um, some of the investments made by governments on behalf of government workers could be at risk. I mean, I really and truly believe that. Enjoy your day. We'll talk tomorrow.